Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I'm not the smartest guy, but what I do know is that when I don't know something, I go in search of it. Like, I know who to ask. And I've been reporting every day now at johnconzano.com, and I wake up and I, I'm full of joy. As I look at what I want to write, what I want to report, analysis, commentary, the reporting on the Pac-12 has captured my attention in the last couple of weeks, but my goal is to help readers with sourced, in-depth reporting and commentary. I want to help you elevate your conversations with your friends and your family members by reading me and listening to this radio program. You can read me every day at johnconzano.com. Be delivered right to your email inbox in real time. I had somebody today reply to that email, and I replied right back. We're in a conversation is what I'm saying. But there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of people that aren't sourced who are throwing out ideas about what will happen with the Pac-12 conference. And and I've made it my aim to, like, hey, I'm going to report what I know what I know to be sourced, what I know to be true. And then we'll talk about it on this radio show, as we do every day. I wrote today about ESPN. Again, Pac-12 looking to Bristol, Connecticut. I, uh, I asked a high-ranking Pac-12 official this morning whether ESPN and Fox might really cannibalize or use the entire 30-day exclusive negotiating window that they are now like eight days into or whether we should expect a resolution before August 4th. That's the deadline. And the answer came back, depends on our friends in Bristol. Now, ESPN has emerged as the most likely bidder for the Pac-12's rights. I've learned a number of things in the last few days that position that network as the conference's most intriguing, most viable, most likely lifeline. The athletic directors in the conference uh, still maintain that they are galvanized and that they are uh, interested in staying together. I do know that uh, if you are looking at the Pac-12 as a whole, that there are a lot of traditionalists and purists like myself who really want to see this conference survive in present form. I also like the idea of a partnership with the ACC. I think it's attractive because you could potentially see some really cool crossover non-conference matchups they'd still be non-conference because they wouldn't be merging the conferences they'd just be in a partnership but you could see clemson or you could see miami play against oregon or utah or you could see florida state playing against uh you know a washington program and and yeah there would be some lesser games there would be syracuse against washington state and wake forest against oregon state but that sure beats the pants off seeing them play montana state or idaho doesn't it I want your phone calls off the top of the show today, 503-417-7575. Tell me what you are interested in and curious about as it pertains to the college football landscape. Great show today. It's going to be a different show on this great Wednesday. Beautiful sunny day in the state of Oregon. 
got to note that. I remember when I moved here in December of 2002, I took the job uh, sort of early in the fall and didn't get here until December, and it was just pouring buckets of rain my first week. And I thought, what did I get myself into? Just pouring rain. Now I know why you live here. These great summer days with blue skies and green grass and green trees and a whole bunch to talk about. But today's show is going to be a little different. I got my dad coming on the show. He's visiting. He's been on an extended visit to the state of Oregon. He uh, is talked about on this show often. So I think it's only fair that we bring him on and let him speak for himself a little bit. But my dad, uh, as many of you know, played professional baseball was in the Mets organization for seven seasons. He's got some good stories. I'm going to pepper him in the 3 o'clock hour here coming up uh, in just a few minutes. He'll join us for about maybe a half hour or so, and we will uh, go through kind of the progression of his career, professional sports, what's it like to be in a spring training. you got Tom Seaver as a teammate, and you've got you know the, the Miracle Mets of 1969 uh, you know, in spring training with you. And, and in the minor leagues with you in 1965, 66, 67, what was that experience like? My dad will be joining us uh, here coming up. Anna will join us, as always, in the 4 o'clock hour. So there's going to be a lot of Canzano family stuff on today's show. And justifiably so, here is why everybody's in town. My brother is caravanning with his family from California up to Oregon. They left at like 1.30 in the morning. They arrived in Eugene. They did a kind of a campus tour. He's got a couple of daughters that uh, you know are probably thinking about where they want to go to college. He's got a son who next season, uh, next season, next college year is going to go to Oregon State. He'll be joining his cousin, my daughter, who is uh, going to be a sophomore at Oregon State. And so uh, they are caravanning up. And why? Because Camp Exceptional is taking place next week. That's the summer camp that the Bald Face Truth Foundation puts on for typical kids and special needs kids. And my brother runs that camp uh, along with uh, friends and family. And it's a great opportunity, I think, to bond and help a bunch of kids in the community have a great summer experience. And so that's why everybody is, uh, you know, accumulating or congregating at our household. But I want to talk about the college football landscape, first of all, and I want your phone calls in this segment. Let's go to the phone lines, 503 417 7575 is a number. Jim is in Junction City. Jim, what's it like in Junction City these days? Oh, it's gorgeous, man. Are you kidding? Love it. <laughs> it's on your mind. Hey. Oh, gosh. I know, I know we need to put this to bed, but uh, I'm really excited about looking forward to the to the, the whole the whole landscape this uh, fall from Miami and how they do and everything else. But just to put it to bed, I, I really enjoyed Coach Cristobal's effect that he had on the program here at Oregon. There are two things that never, ever came around, and one of them was his game clock managing. He butchered it. Yep. And the other one was that he would totally override. His, he would just take over the, the offensive calling at times. It, it was obvious, you know. Yeah. And I just wondered, if anybody, did, did you ever hear anybody call him out on that, even in a friendly way, and ask him, you know, what's – Yeah. I it, never heard it. I had I had conversations with him about it, and, and and here's another thing, I think Mario Cristobal was incredibly tough on his assistant coaches. I think he was a grind to work for, and I know that because look at the number of assistant coaches that turned over in his tenure. I think he's incredibly demanding. I think he asked a lot of the coaches. I think he wanted them at the office, and he wanted them working relentlessly. He you know all that stuff that he preached. I think he really lived it in practice. I do think he was 
getting to the office at like 4.30 in the morning and staying late. And you know, uh, I think he was incredibly demanding and probably difficult to work with. I also think he was controlling. And I think he had the coordinators, uh, first Marcus Arroyo and then later Jim Moorhead. I do think he had the coordinators in a bit of a headlock. When you are the head coach, it is sort of your right to do that because it's your program. And, you know, but I think more experienced veteran head coaches know that delegation is the key, that you are the CEO operating from 10,000 feet. But I watched Mario Cristobal in the pregame warmups, and that guy was down there on the sideline with the offensive lineman, you know, got a whistle in his mouth, and he's actually doing, uh, doing drills, like running drills in the pregame. And, and it was very different to see a head coach down there involved in everything, his hands on everything. But I think part of that is Mario Cristobal's personality, and I think part of it is the fact that he was relatively new as a head coach. I don't want to say young because he's not a young guy, but I think he was new as a head coach. He had had one other previous head coaching experience. And and for anybody who's ever been in charge of anything, you kind of know that like if your fate is resting on something, you do ha- want to have a say in all things, and I think Mario Cristobal probably took that to the extreme and wanted to have a say in all things, literally. I think it hurt him. I think his game management got better in subsequent years uh, versus his first year, but I also think it was a weakness. And, you know, look, we all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. Mario Cristobal's strength was he could recruit. His weakness was he uh, probably was too conservative, didn't uh, didn't understand the X's and O's of game management like some other coaches did, and very emotional during games. I thought he had some weird timeouts and failure to take timeouts, weird play call decisions. But we all sort of lived with it because we, we thought, well, if you're going to be okay with Mario Cristobal, the recruiter, you have to be okay with Mario Cristobal, the game coach. I just think he was a much better recruiter and is a much better recruiter than a game coach. And I, and I expect that those same problems are going to follow him to Miami because I just don't see him letting up on the offense and, and going, hey, you just call whatever you want and I'll sit over here and watch it. Uh, that opens a line now at 503-417-7575. Let's go to Roy, who's in Portland, SEC Roy, joining us. What's up, Roy? Hey, John. I'm going to push back on you a little bit with uh, Mario, man. If y'all don't think that Nick Saban got his hands on every aspect, if he if if you don't see him over there chewing out, I don't care if it's Lane Kiffin or Sark or whoever the defensive coordinator. If he said run the ball, they go. I don't care what Lane Kiffin or Sark offensive plan is. You gonna run the ball. You gonna do what you gonna do. You gonna play the defense. Say same thing with Kirby Smart. That's why I say with Dan Lanning. If people thought that Dan Lanning was walking into a defensive coordinator beat and said this is what we gonna do and Kirby Smart didn't have his input, or Will Muschamp, y'all got another thing coming. Because whatever Kirby Smart said the defense was going to do, Dan Lanning was going to do what Kirby Smart said. If Dan Lanning said something and Kirby Smart said no, best believe it was going to be what Kirby Smart said. Yes. So, I mean, those those SEC coaches, it goes through them. They don't care about what you're saying as a coordinator. They're going to do what they want to do. But, but, but I'm looking forward to the landscape, John. I'm looking forward to all conferences. Because I think this is going to be one of the greatest college football seasons in a long time. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think every conference is going to be good. Every conference is it, it's going to, it's going to be good football. But what Oregon needs to worry about is going down to dog country. So yeah, what, yeah. What's that? What's that going to be like? What's that going to be like, Roy? Tell us. <laughs> y'all never been down to dog country for real. 
I mean, it may be in Atlanta, but that's still dog country right there. And you're going to have, you're going to see what college football is all about. You're going to see insane. All you're going to see is red and black in that block G, okay? And 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 and, and all you're going to hear is go dog. <laughs> I love it. Hey, Roy, let me ask you this. Georgia's lost a lot, right? Look at all the guys drafted. Great year, great season. Dan Lanning's coming in. This is his first game. I I really don't know what to expect, but I kind of want to think that there's a chance that Oregon could play Georgia closer than the spread. Do you see it that way, or is this going to be all Georgia just reloading with guys that are hungry to get on the field? Well, the thing is, it's the first game of the season, so you know some weird stuff happened in the first game. You know, you have teams that you didn't expect to win because it's the first game. Yeah. You know, who, we don't know who's got nerves. You know, Dan Lanning's never really – he's never been a head coach before. We don't know how he's going to do. Um, you know, I, I still I – expect, I expect Georgia to win, you know, but it could be close. I, I mean, I don't, I, just because it's the first game. Yeah. But I don't expect Oregon to win. I, I don't expect Oregon. What, what would it do to Georgia's psyche if Oregon kicks Georgia in the teeth? If Oregon kicks Georgia in the – I, I don't think it'll do much it, – it, it, what it'll do for my psyche is <laughs> – <laughs> I'll be down for the rest of the season. That means I can't call in and talk crap if, if, if Oregon wins. Now that that'll be a total bummer for me. But I think they could bounce back if they if they were were to lose. You know, yeah. but uh, you know, I, I don't think it. I don't think I don't think Kirby will let the team get down. You know, but you know, uh, um, it, 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 it they could they could still pull off the. You know, they could still win the win the East and possibly win the SEC. Yeah, they could do what Ohio State did. Essentially, Ohio State kind of rebounded from that Oregon loss and did okay. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we really don't have any competition in the the East. You know, Tennessee is coming along. You know, Kentucky. That's about our – you know, Kentucky and Tennessee. South Carolina is supposed to be better, but I doubt it. And, um, you know, so we definitely probably win the East. It's just Alabama I'm worried about always. Are you going to the Oregon-Georgia game? Am I going? Come on, that guy. You know I'm going. All right. All right. I will see you there. I'm going to try to find you, John. All right. I'm going to give you a big go dogs. All right. Give us a go dogs as you go off your call here. Okay. One more time. Go dogs. Sick them. (laughs) There's Roy in Portland. (laughs) Steven? I love it. You never probably thought you were going to hear that today. No, I did not. That's why you come to this show. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, before we uh, before we go to break, let's let's unpack that a little bit. If you are uh, if you are an Oregon fan, listening to what Roy said, first of all, I think I think the difference with Mario Cristobal and Nick Saban is, I think Nick Saban because he's won national championships, you sort of respect and understand that. All right, the guy knows what he's talking about. Mario Cristobal fairly new, unproven head coach when he stepped in at Oregon. He had had the Florida Atlantic experience or, or the FAU experience. So it, uh, in the end, I think what we really saw from Mario Cristobal was him struggling with game management. Uh, the Stanford game comes to mind. He didn't have Joe Moorhead. I just felt at times we were watching a guy coaching fairly early in his tenure. He was making mistakes that young coaches make. And I thought they got better uh, you know, in, in this last season. But I uh, I also think that he's going to be hamstrung by that game management stuff until 
he realizes and recognizes that he needs to let go of that part of the game. And, and I, I've seen coaches who never let go of it. And I've seen others who go, hey, I understand. Like My strength is in recruiting. I can coach the offensive line. Uh, I better let somebody else handle the game management part of this. And I think that's where Mario Cristobal ended up. What did you hear in that call from Roy? Yeah, like uh, like Roy said, Nick Saban has control over everything. He can recruit and he can game manage. And I think that's the point is that Mario Cristobal is not in that elite level coach. He, and he may never get there because there are so few coaches that can recruit at that elite level and coach, you know, game manage at that elite level. So that, you know, I do agree with Roy and I agree with you at the same time, like, Cristobal does need to improve that spot, and I'm not sure if he does that at Miami, but when you bring in the talent, it doesn't matter as much. And so with Dan Lanning, it's the same thing. He's a great recruiter, but what is his X's and O's? What's his game management? We don't know as a head coach. He could be an elite coach like Nick Saban, but he could also be a guy like Willie Taggart who brought in good recruits but couldn't do anything. Right. Yeah. So it's so unknown right now, and that's what the big mystery is. And as you said, 17.5-point spread, man, that's a big spread. I think it's too many points for an opener, and and that is my point. Like, I did pick Oregon over Ohio State, and everybody thought I was crazy until Oregon beat them, but I could see what was happening there. I saw Minnesota and Ohio State play the week before, and Minnesota was moving the piles. Minnesota was very physical. P.J. Flex team, very physical at the point of attack. And I thought, gosh, if Oregon could find some of that physicality, uh, this didn't. It didn't look like a great Ohio State defense. Like the linebackers look ordinary, and the defensive line wasn't great. And I thought, you know, this is a year that I think Oregon can move the ball on them. And everyone th- said it was crazy. I was nuts. I was a homer. What not? Oregon went in there and won the game. I'm not willing to say Oregon's going to go to the Georgia Dome and and beat uh, you know the defending national champions in the opener. But when you say 17 and a half, 18 points, I've seen that spread. A week one game. A front seven at Oregon on defense that's pretty physical. They're going to fly around. They're going to cause Georgia some problems. 21 new starters at Georgia. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm building a case here for Oregon to be in this game, you know, and and in this game meaning closer than 18, 17, 18 points. So I I do think Oregon can stick around a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry, John. It could be a one-score game, and like you said, they lose a lot of guys. If you paid attention to the NFL draft, especially the first two rounds, it was a lot of Georgia defense. And yes. I know there's a lot of five stars and a lot of elite guys coming back because that's how Georgia recruits. But they're putting put it in a new role, and sometimes those guys don't adjust to that as quickly. So I'm with you. It seems like a lot of points. It, I like the game yeah. being in Atlanta does scare me a, a little bit, and um, and also just Oregon's background against the SEC. Like Oregon, a couple of years ago, lost to a pretty mediocre Auburn team. We haven't really seen them go head to head, you know, for at least ten years against the best of the best in the SEC, and even then, it didn't go very well. So those are the that's kind of the counter. Um, that's why I can see the spread kind of being pretty accurate there. And Bo Nix, a quarterback for Oregon, he's played in the SEC. He started a you know a double-digit number of games. I like him there. If it weren't, if it were like you know a Ty Thompson getting his first start, I would feel much different about it. But I think Oregon can hang around. All right, my dad's gonna pop in studio next. Uh, we've talked about him a lot on the show. Uh, he's joined us before. Uh, you'll get to hear him in his words next. <laughs> You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I've got a special guest in studio today. My dad, Tony Canzano, is in studio. We've had him on the show before. 
he's back because you demanded he come back. I'm going to fix your microphone so you're good to go. You're, you're a veteran. You've, done it. You've already done an hour of this. Uh, <laughs> let me ask you, Dad. All right, so, so let's go back to you in high school. For people who don't know, you, you played professional baseball. You were in the Mets organization for seven seasons. You got to AAA yeah, with the Tidewater Tides of the Mets organization. You later ended up in the Expos organization. But let's go back to high school. You're playing high school. You had uh, you had teammates in high school. By the way, uh, was it Bob Barry who uh, went to high school with you in Willow Glen High School? Well, Bob Barry's father was the coach, and Bob Barry was a few years older than uh, than us, and uh, he went to the University of Oregon, then Minnesota, and played the NFL. Yeah, he was a, a big time quarterback at Oregon. Like you know, I, I remember seeing that name and. Uh, but did you ever see him play, or was he one of those players that you looked up to? You kind of you were younger. Well, I was younger. Uh, we used to go to the games and hang around the sidelines. He was uh, he was special. He had a soft touch, and uh, so he was just very talented. So and then Barry, the coach Barry, had had the record in the United States: forty-two games, oh, yeah. one in a row. Yeah. So you guys had a, so, they had a 42 game win streak when yeah. you were there. Um, so you end up in high school. You have a scout for the for the Mets organization. Roy Partee was his name, and he ends up scouting you and and signing you. But you were 17 years old in high school. How did that go over with your parents, my grandparents, as this this guy's coming into the living room saying, "Hey, your son is good enough to play professional baseball," and you know I know how much they valued education. Yeah, especially uh, especially my mom. So they had um, two things they were offering. Uh, you could get a um, scholarship, which was in those days eight thousand bucks, four years of college, right. <laughs> or uh, you could take the money. And of course, my dad tried to get both. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You, you got to know him to appreciate it. And uh, they said no, one or the other. So uh, we took the money because. I figured I could, uh, I could pay for college in those days yeah. as we went. So that's what we did. How much money are we talking about? What is what's your signing bonus as a high school kid? What year are we talking about, too? Um, sixty, <laughs> December of sixty-four. Okay, nineteen sixty-four. Is eight thousand bucks. Eight thousand dollar. That must have felt like a lot of money to a seventeen-year-old kid. Yeah, it's was, it was a million dollars. You could buy a <laughs> really nice car for three thousand. Yeah. You know. And did you buy a car? Yeah, um, I bought a, a Sunbeam Tiger for I think thirty-five hundred. Had a Ford motor in it, V8. Yeah, and a very hot car. So convertible. Too. Convertible. So you were making it at that point. You head off. You head off. Now, now people ask me because I'm born in the state of Oregon. Like, you you took another chunk of your signing bonus and you bought some land in Southern Oregon. Like, what prompted you? to buy that land in Southern Oregon that made me a native Oregonian. My, uh, my dad wanted me to buy a, a duplex or a triplex and rent it out. And then when he came back from the baseball season to go ahead and uh, live in it. And uh, I was uh, young and uh, uh, kind of dumb. <laughs> and uh, so I was afraid yeah. the tenants couldn't make the payment. And then I'd have to make the payment, and so I said I didn't want to do that. So we ended up buying forest land near uh, near Ashland, yeah. And uh, 
It's on a BLM road, 120 acres, uh, fir trees. I wanted to um, grow Christmas trees. Yeah. So, uh, so we bought 2,000 seedlings. Wait, how does a 17-year-old kid from California go, hey, I need to be in the Christmas tree business? <laughs> well, I had a job during Christmas selling Christmas trees at a lot. <laughs> so I said, this is pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, so we did that. We bought the tree. They were like two cents a piece. Yeah. So how many trees did you buy? Couple thousand. Okay. And uh, what do you like? What do you do with a couple thousand trees? Well, uh, you're supposed to plant them on the land. Yes. But we never got around to it. I planted them <laughs> in my sister's backyard. <laughs> my, so, my sister would do anything for you, you know. Yeah. So anyway, uh, she finally sold the house with the seedlings in it. <laughs> so she had thousands of trees. Yeah. In the back of her house. Yeah. Oh man. So. Well, but you end up at Southern Oregon College uh, in what is uh, now Southern Oregon University, but you end up there in in the winter. Was that between seasons, or how does that work? You're just it, taking some classes? It, no, it was between seasons. So um, I was trying to get some units. I was going to be a, a teacher and a coach, trying to get some units. So uh, I had two kids, you and Amy. Yeah. So uh, in order to support you needed a job someday so um, I went for that but, did you uh, not consider baseball a job at the time or what did that feel like uh, it wasn't really a job it was um, you know uh, some people think it's a lot of fun you know but it's hard work it's hard work and uh, road trips and buses and airplanes it, uh, it wasn't easy yeah so uh, so seven years worth of that is a lot Although I had uh, Curtis Brown, yeah, did it for 15 years, yeah, and got one game in the big leagues. Yeah, let's talk about Curtis Brown for a second because he grows up in the Sacramento area. He's got, I think, two brothers that also played in professional baseball. They were close with Dusty Baker, uh, but Curtis Brown. Where do you encounter Curtis Brown in the minor leagues? Um, first year in Greenville, South Carolina, and in uh, spring training. So. We're at second base, and Partee, the scout, was worried about me because I was very quiet, kind of shy. So he said, you're going to have to step up, and when these guys go to take grounders, you get in front of the guy. So I got in front of Curtis a few times. <laughs> <laughs> and later I had to apologize for him that I was told to do that. So anyway, so I saw him from the beginning. So we had Greenville. We had uh, that's Durham. single single A, yeah, and then Durham is double A. No, it's still single still, A. Okay, but a little higher league. And uh, was he in Memphis? Memphis and Tidewater. All right, so all the way through. All, all the way through. Now Curtis Brown, uh, as you mentioned, he plays 15 seasons. He gets he gets to the big leagues. He gets one game in the major leagues, and um, he got three plate appearances. Against, uh, I think it was Ron Bryant was pitching right. against him. I, I looked it up, and uh, he gets one opportunity, and that was it. You, you think about that, because I know when you're in the minor leagues, you want to get to the big leagues. Would that have been enough for you if you had gotten one game? No. <laughs> that would have been horrible. <laughs> Is that worse than not getting there in I, your mind? <laughs> I think so. Um, what was I going to say about Curtis in that game? Oh, so... When they send him down, he lasted a week. Yeah. When they send him back to AAA, the AAA manager says, why'd they send you back? You're the best player I got. Yeah. 
and uh, Gene Mock was the manager at uh, the Expos back then. Yeah. And he said, uh, I got guys that can run faster and, and uh, throw better. So wow. he got rid of uh, Curtis. I got to get Curtis Brown on the show and talk about that one game in the big leagues. <laughs> Uh, you had great. You had great teammates. You had a, a lot of experiences. You were also um, in the minor leagues at a time when um, you know civil rights movement is going on. I want to talk about all of that. You were in Memphis when Martin Luther King was shot and killed. You, you were playing for the Memphis Blues at the time. I want to talk about all of that. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll come back with more. My dad is visiting. He is in studio. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. My dad is visiting from California. Tony Canzano, former professional baseball player, minor league baseball player in the Mets organization, uh, fielding some questions on Twitter for you, Dad. Uh, I got a bunch of things I want to ask you. But John on Twitter wants to know, did the Mets World Series title in 1969 have an impact on your career positively or negatively and uh you you were you were teammates with a lot of those guys how does that how did the minor league team react when the when the miracle mets won it all well they were all very proud because every classification in the minor leagues for the mets won the pennant that year the a ball teams the double a the triple a and the big leagues wow well, they had. They were so bad. They had, you know, the first picks for years. Uh-huh. So they were loaded. They were loaded, and then um, they had a a guy uh, playing. Uh, he was a utility player, Wayne Garrett. Okay. That I had played against in the Texas League, and uh, Wayne was a infielder, mediocre hitter. He uh, didn't run well. Uh, average hands. So uh, they picked him up from winter ball and brought him up to the big leagues. I was disappointed because mm. I thought I was a better player. But um, Charlie Lau was his uh, previous manager. Maybe Lau had something to do with his hitting that they liked. I, I, I don't know. So, yeah, so when they won the pennant, it kind of uh, sank the rest of us down hmm. because they didn't they felt they didn't have to make too many changes yeah but they had great pitching and that's what got them to the uh, world series and won the series independent in spring training you saw those guys and you were teammates with some of those guys like uh you know nolan ryan john matlack jerry kuzman tom Seaver. uh what comes to mind when when i mention those pitchers um nolan ryan hitting a guy in the back it was very painful to watch, even. Um, what was it like to play shortstop or middle infield with Ryan pitching? Uh, you're not going to get many ground balls. So uh, it was uh, kind of like uh, watch him either walk somebody or strike him out. <laughs> yeah. You know, like Little League almost. Yeah. So Kuzman had a uh, cut fastball, and he was a great guy. He was 24 in A ball. He had gone in the Army and came back out. I played with them in Greenville, and then uh, the Mets sent him to Double A and then to the big leagues. So uh, he ended up a 21-game winner. Gary Gentry was from the minors. Uh, Seaver only hit against once in spring training. What was it like to face Tom Seaver? 
you know, I thought it was his fastball that I'd have to worry about, but he threw a slider where it didn't have any spin. Mm. It was uh, about as fast as a fastball, and it just slid over yeah. about six inches with no warning. Yeah. So I ended up popping out. I was glad to do that. <laughs> so you had uh, you 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 faced some guys that went and had great careers too as a as a hitter. Uh, Louis Tiant among them. Uh, tell us the story about Louis Tiant. You faced him, and is it spring training? No, it was. Uh, I think it was '69 regular season. Huh. Red Sox had sent him down for some reason. I don't know why. But, uh, you know, he used to have a wind-up where he'd turn his back to the hitter, which is pretty scary because you're thinking, <laughs> hey, I'm over here, you know. Yeah. Look where you're throwing. So, anyway, I decided I was going to hit a curveball because uh, I thought that was his best pitch. So, prior to the at-bat, you're on deck. You're thinking, I'm looking for a curveball. Yep. Okay. Let the fastball go by. All right. So, uh, he throws the fastball about letter high and away. And I swung at it. Don't ask me why. Yeah. And I hit it over the right field fence. You know, I waited on it good. Yeah. Maybe that was the key. <laughs> right. You and, stayed uh, back. So the next at bat, I hit a, I got a curveball. I hit a double to left center. And then next at bat, I hit another double. So I went three, four, a four against Tion that day. And the grandpa was in the stands. Yeah. So. Uh, that was pretty special. Yeah, he liked that. Because uh, one of the scouts that was in the stands, uh, Grandpa was sitting behind him, and the scout said, uh, oh, this guy, uh, good field, no hit. And uh, when he hit the home run, then the double, and then another double, the young scout looked at the old scout like, what are you, crazy? What do you know? You don't know anything, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, uh, anyway. What was it about Tion that let you hit him, or is it just that kind of day? Well, you know what? Uh, Grandpa had a broken elbow. Yeah. And he used to throw me batting practice as a kid. Everything was sidearm. Hmm. So I was used to sidearm. You could hit that, you, knew what, to, you knew to hit him to right field. Yeah, and that's yeah. what Tion was, sidearm. So I could see the ball real well. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I hit, I hit sidearmers real well. That's interesting. Um, the, uh, the, the minor leagues, you know, we always talk about bus rides and, and how difficult it is. Uh, you're, you're in the south. You're in Memphis. You're in Greenville, South Carolina, in the 1960s, and and you know you're in Tidewater, you're in Virginia. It, what it, what was it like, just sort of the atmosphere of the country at that time? Hmm. Well, Memphis had uh, had a lot of problems. They uh, they had garbage strikes. Uh, they had a lot of protests after uh, Martin Luther King got shot, understandably, and. Uh, so uh, a lot of prejudice. The black players uh, had to live separately. Couldn't live in our area. Um, same same deal with Greenville. Couldn't eat in restaurants. Couldn't live uh, where the other guys lived. And uh, guys like Curtis that came from uh, California, that was a eye opener for him. Yeah. So he didn't ever seen anything like that. Yeah, and you're friends with those guys. How does that affect a team? Um, don't know. Um, they probably had some uh, reservations about that, but the team supported them pretty well. We walked out of one restaurant that wouldn't serve them 
And uh, I remember growing up hearing that story, that that was kind of something that you and mom told us, that you guys had stopped. Was it a road trip? You stop at a diner? Or where are you, where are yeah, you guys? It was like downtown Lexington. Yeah. North Carolina, I think. And um, so it was uh, it was not good. So we had to leave and. So they wouldn't serve Curtis. No. They did they did they identify? Hey, hey Curtis, you're black. You can't eat here. Or no. what is that conversation like? They said, uh, "Are you an American Indian?" Curtis was light complected. So Curtis said, "No, I'm a Negro." And they said, "Well, we can't serve you here." So, with that, we uh, we walked out. As a team, you walked out. You yeah. got up and walked. That must have meant a lot to Curtis. I don't know. I never talked to him about it. You know, uh, must have been a shock. I know that. Um, what else? Uh, what about when Martin Luther King dies and and he's shot in Memphis? You're playing in Memphis. That had to be surreal. Yep. Yep. Garbage strikes. Um, Everybody in an uproar. Weird time in the country, too. You have assassination. You have Kennedy. You're in high school when Kennedy is shot. Is that right? Yeah, high school. And then, uh, you know, it, 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 it just had to be a, a transformative time for the country. But I can't imagine, like, okay, now you got to play a baseball game amid all of that. Did you guys continue to play, or were there was there a stoppage? No, we, we played. No stoppage. And uh, just did it. Another listener wants to know about you. You grew up uh, in the San Jose area playing high school baseball. Dan Pastorini, Jim Plunkett, um, uh, other players. You know, we talked about Bob Barry already. But what was uh, what were the? Did you have any interactions with Plunkett or Pastorini? I think Plunkett was at James Lick High School, and yeah. Pastorini was at Bellarmine. Yeah, uh, Plunkett. Uh, we we played them. Uh, I remember him in a baseball game. We were playing against him. I didn't play my senior year of football in high school because of um, what the scouts said about uh, not playing. They didn't want me to play because if you blew out a knee or a shoulder, yeah. it'd be over. So anyway, um, so Plunkett's uh, hitting. He had a line drive up the middle, and as a shortstop, I knocked it down, and the second baseman uh, got the put out at second. So Plunkett eventually ends up on second base. He looks over at me and smiles. <laughs> he was huge. Yeah. You know, he was, what, 6'3"? Yeah, he's a big guy. 200. Big guy, yeah. You know, we were like 150, 5'10", <laughs> 5'11". Right. You know. Uh, Pastorini, I don't remember. I don't remember playing against him in high school. I don't know if he was later or if we just didn't play Bellarmine. Uh, we got a caller who wants to make an offer here. Mark in Beaverton has called in. Mark, what's on your mind, man? Hey, John. So, Tony, it's a pleasure to get to talk with you. Um, Thank you. I wasn't sure whether you would take this or not, but um, I wanted to offer $250 to the Bald Face Truth Foundation if there was any possible way to get some time and play catch with you. You want to play catch? <laughs> Can you still play catch? Oh. At what distance? <laughs> yeah. I got two bad shoulders. <laughs> And okay, a bad so, arm and bad hands. Are, are, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was at the I was at the doctor's office today for that. <laughs> so I do the best I can. But. Mark, you come on out to Camp Exceptional. We'll get some gloves. Okay. We'll get we'll okay, get some gloves. 
We'll make it happen. Uh, Brent is in Vancouver. Brent has a question. Brent, go ahead. <laughs> hey, John, love your show. Thank you. Question for your dad. Uh, I yeah. turned on, on your show late today, but uh, my parents were back in Norfolk, Virginia. My dad was in the Navy, and they used to go to all the Tide games. When was your dad back there? Uh, 69 through 71. Okay. I'll have to check with him because uh, this is kind of <laughs> exciting to, to hear yeah. that. They might have been connected to you somehow. So, yeah. Uh, hey, great um, show today. You Love know, hearing your stories. Uh, uh, Portsmouth had an old stadium that we played in in 69. Then they built a new stadium in uh, Norfolk. And, uh, okay. Uh, so it was like a brand new, beautiful stadium. And, uh, you know, I was in the mortgage business later on, and I had some guy come in from the bank. And he was soliciting us, and he told me uh, he was from uh, Norfolk, and they just built a new stadium. I said, why did they oh, do neat. that? They just built a new stadium. He said, when? I said, in uh, 1970. <laughs> so it was like 40, 50 years later. Uh, appreciate that. Thank you for the call. Appreciate that. It's interesting, too, because you think about, like, you know, what, what did you guys do all day? If you had a game at night, what did you do all day? Well, for uh, you know, those southern uh, cities were really hot and muggy, so you try to rest up. Um, once in a while, the wife wants to go out shopping, and you try to do it, but it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> you, you get really tired, so yeah. you're just resting. Sitting most around of the all day. day. Yeah, pretty boring. Sitting around all day. All right, I I gotta ask you about Wilbur Huckle coming up. Mm. The legend of Wilbur Huckle. Next, <laughs> leave it right here. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Got my dad in studio, Tony Canzano, former minor league baseball player, professional baseball player in the Mets and the Expos organization. I want to ask you, Dad, uh, Wilbur Huckle, where did you in first encounter Wilbur Huckle in the minor leagues? Wilbur is in spring training, and uh, he was the type of guy that, uh, you know, he had red hair and freckles, stocky build, and tons of energy. He would uh, ride his bike to, to the spring training camp from the motel. He would uh, go fishing before the uh, spring training started, and he'd go fishing afterwards. So um, he was a, a very interesting guy. He uh, was a legend there in the Mets organization. He um, eventually ended up uh, managing in the minor leagues after he was uh, done playing. But uh, Wilbur was very special. He, uh, during, uh, during road trips, he'd want to wake up early, get you up. We were roommates, and he'd uh, want to walk around town. And he'd walk for miles. <laughs> So. so you're talking about resting up for the game. Uh, he would want to walk around. Now, was there some discrepancy over his age, his birth certificate? How old was Wilbur Huckle? Um, nobody really knew. At least the <laughs> players didn't know. I thought he was uh, our age, but it turns out he was about five years older. So when he was in AAA, he was about 30 at the, uh, at the end. Yeah. There. But in 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 there's he even was there a campaign where he the Mets kind of pushed him up like as a joke Wilbur Huckle for president in the '60s or what was that? Well, uh, 
he was a top prospect when he first signed, and that was in the early 60s, probably probably 63 or so. And they came out with a, a campaign button, the, the Metropolitan Party, Wilbur Huckle for president. And uh, so uh, uh, I ended up getting that uh, button on eBay. It's, I've got it hung up in my office. Oh, I love that. So, uh, yeah, he was a very special guy. Uh, you, you probably had uh, a ton of other encounters. Um, you know, Gil Hodges, um, who else did you come in contact with in, in the minor leagues? Well, Hodges, um, you know, while we were there, had a heart attack. Mm. And I don't know if he died or if he was just disabled. But I didn't uh, really have too much uh, contact with him. Duke Schneider? Oh, Duke Schneider. Duke Schneider was great. He, uh, he was about 46 to 50 years old, and he was a better hitter than anybody on our team. He would just pump balls over the right field fence regularly, no problem. Was, it, was he the manager, or was he the hitting coach, or what was he? He was the manager. That so, was in 66. So he's in his mid to late 40s. You guys are what, in your early 20s? Yeah. And there, and Gil Hodges is jumping in for batting practice, or I mean, excuse me, Duke Schneider's jumping in for batting practice. Yeah, and then they had a um, uh, old timers game in Eugene. Yeah, and uh, he hit uh, about three home runs in that game. <laughs> you know, and, and us guys in the dugout are just in awe. Right. You know, so <laughs> pretty special. Yeah. All right. Thank you for coming on, giving us uh, some of your time. I appreciate it, Dad. Okay. All right, good stuff. Um, he's going to take his headset off now. Uh, coming up, we'll play Punch It Audio. Uh, appreciate you coming on. Now, I know the listeners are going to want more of you, all right, now that you know he's walking out of the studio. But uh, we'll, we'll get that. Anna's coming up later in the show as well. you got the Bald Face Truth statewide. Leave it right here on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. More ahead. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Very special radio show today. Stephen, how'd my dad do? He did really well. I love uh, I love hearing those old baseball stories. I, uh, I I wanted to keep him longer, but I think he was. Uh, uh, we've got nieces and nephews. His grandchildren, like seven of his grandchildren, are out in the other room. My brother and his family drove up from Central California. They just arrived right before the show or early in the show. They pulled in. They were listening uh, as they were driving up I-5, heading in. Uh, you know, stopped in Eugene. Then got lunch there and then uh, headed in. I, I'm dragging my brother on the show now. This is going to be a Conzano family special today. We've got a lot to live up to now. <laughs> my brother, has, my younger brother has popped into the studio, Ben. And Ben is uh, the, the uh, brains and the energy behind Camp Exceptional. It's the summer camp for typical kids and special needs kids. It'll happen next week. The Bald Face Truth Foundation uh, puts on that camp. But my brother and his team facilitate the camp he's an adaptive pe specialist and he has just arrived you're a little bit tired are you oh yeah then i uh, got up at about 12 15 in the morning teenage kids decided they would uh wanted to get a head start and so uh wait 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 you guys left 
At what? All right, where where are you leaving? Uh, central uh, Fresno. Area. Fresno, yeah. California. Central California. Clovis area. Yep. At what hour did you guys get in the car? Uh, we were on the freeway by 1:40 a.m. <laughs> Went to bed at a little after 10. Okay. So, <laughs> so you're going on no sleep. That's right. And you're getting in the car. You, your wife, three kids. You're packed up. You're driving, basically an 11-hour drive. <laughs> so you you hit no traffic. I'm assuming. Oh yeah, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. But you're also exhausted. Uh, you stopped in Eugene. What was that like? Uh, so we decided, you know, lunchtime. So we went to the uh, was that the uh, wild uh, wild duck? duck? Yeah, the wild duck. It's right by Matthew Knight Arena, right yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. We're sitting having uh, lunch there as a family. Pretty good food. Yeah. And uh, you saw, see, saw some coaches there. Who'd you see? Lunch. Who was uh, having lunch? We had the uh, the basketball coach. Dana Altman Dana, was there. Yeah, Dana was there with a couple other guys, and and I'm not. Uh, I could have sworn maybe even the baseball coach walked in. Hmm. Uh, Mark right Wasikowski. Yeah, wasn't sure if it was him. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, kind of looked at. Uh, so yeah. He's playing in the celebrity golf tournament tomorrow. So you will tell him, hey, I bet I know where you had lunch yesterday. Uh, Wild Duck. Uh, shout out to the Wild Duck there and listeners uh, in Fox Sports Eugene, 10:50 a.m. Uh, give me an idea. What was it like? Because right now during the commercial break, we walked out, and you, your wife, Anna, my girls, your kids were all sitting around listening to the radio, listening to Grandpa tell baseball stories. Yeah, the, it was pretty quiet. Everybody was kind of listening, and, and they wanted to hear what Papa Tony had to say. Yeah. It, it, it's surreal. It's weird for me to interview him because I've heard the stories, and I, but I know he doesn't know because he's, he's lived it. He doesn't know which parts of the stories are the interesting parts, like right. to other people, because he's lived it, or, you know, right. done or, it so much. Or sometimes, you know, he'll leave out a detail or, or here or there that, you know, we've heard, and he's like, well, you've heard this story before. Yeah. And so you kind of have to remind him, uh, you know, give me a little bit more. What, yeah. what, you know, what else happened? Um, but I think it's, I think it's cool. It was kind of funny because um, uh, my friends, they, they're all spread out. Uh, one of them lives in Hawaii, and he texts me uh, when he, he saw your article uh, that recently came out and, and talked about the Dutch bro yeah. experience. Right. Um, and so he was talking about, you know, the days, you know, cut, catching fly balls and, and him being a, their little league coach. And there's quite a few of my friends that a lot of times I run into them, they say, you know, your dad was the best coach ever. Uh, so that's always nice to yeah. – uh, Daniel Vanderwright is the director of football operations at Oregon State. He played Little League on your team right. and, and played for Dad. He comes up to me all the time, and he says, man, Coach Tony. And it, it was – I don't think you and I realized that not everybody's dad had that kind of baseball background, you know? Not until we're sitting here now in, yeah. in, in our <laughs> we 40s look, and, we... uh, that you realize, you know, even you know, as a teenager, it's hard to coach your son. And, uh, and so – now looking back, it's like, oh man, I wish I would have listened to him a little bit more, and I give him such a hard time. <laughs> the age you know? old, that's what our own kids uh, will say one day, hopefully. I remember I was umpiring little league games. You were playing in the game, and, and Dad was coaching. It was kind of a weird thing. <laughs> I'd be behind the plate, you were up to bat, and, you know, and I'm telling you, hey, he's throwing strikes. You better be swinging, <laughs> and Dad's coaching. Not saying anything to the umpire because that's how he was. Uh, but it's it, to me, it's kind of neat. Like we had the, we had a caller call in and wanted to play catch with him. I was like, I want to play catch with him too. Yeah. Like you know, I got last summer. He was in the backyard here at the house, and we had a wiffle ball out and a bat. And I'm telling you, he's in his 70s. 
I was throwing him pitches, and he was cranking line drives right back he's at still me. Got the hand-eye coordination. Yes. You know? Doesn't lose it. I was. I always tell people, and I'm curious what your experience was. Like, I knew at a very young age that I was not going to be a professional baseball player because I saw him. I couldn't outrun him until I was like 18. His hands were butter soft. Everything looked smooth and easy for him. It, nothing came easy for me. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, even you know some of the players uh, that he coached too, they would see it um, as effort, effortlessly. Effortlessly, yeah. you know, he just uh, great range, and so you, I can only hear the stories of his experiences playing. But um, and at his age, back when we were younger, you know, in his late 30s and early 40s, you know, for him to still be able to move like that, yeah. like you said, you know, be able to hit, hit a hit a ball super high in the sky, grab yeah. his glove, and, you know, we've tried that and not right. come close. I can't even hit a pop-up. <laughs> can't find the ball. Yeah. I, I always watch even pro coaches and college coaches and high school coaches now, you know, when they do infield and they hit the ground balls, they go around the infield, they go around the outfield, the last thing they always do is they hit a pop-up to the catcher. A lot of them will not hit it. They'll just throw it up. Yeah, yeah. And I am always going, like, that's how you can tell if somebody can really hit infield, if they can hit the pop-up to the catcher at the end of the yeah, infield. Yeah, that's what one of my friends, he uh, texted me yesterday and said that, you know, exactly that, that he caught a lot. Of, he, he hit him super high. He just right. hit it a little bit. He would yeah, hit he would hit it, hit it to the moon. Yeah. yeah. It, everybody he, in infield, he would hit the ball up there. Everybody else is leaving the field, and the ball is still up yeah. in the air. The catcher's circling underneath it. My brother Ben is now in studio. You heard my dad in hour one. Tell me uh, why Camp Exceptional is important to you. You come up every summer. This will be the ninth time you have put on this camp. Special needs kids, typical kids in one place. Why is that important to you? Uh, you know, it's just it's something that I always had uh, compassion for is, you know, individuals with special needs and uh, – you know, in college, I was trying to decide, you know, in kinesiology, which direction I wanted to go. And, and I got into adapted PE and, and I loved the coaching part, but I also loved uh, that a lot of these individuals, you know, they have strengths and, and, and weaknesses, but like we all do, we have challenges and they were, how can I help them to, you know, overcome their uh, challenges? And that's what kind of camps about. So I, you and I, I know we had that discussion nine, nine years ago on a park bench and you said, you know, you do all these events down where you're out, let's do something up here. Yeah. And so that's kind of how it started. Um, but you know, it's important because, you know, in all aspects of our lives, whether, you know, we're five years old or we're in our fifties, we're going to come across people that are different and we need to learn how to, you know, work with, work through things that if we don't understand, and sometimes, you know, we're afraid of what we don't understand. And so, uh, Looking, you know, at the elementary level, when you see an individual that might flap their arms or make uh, different noises, and you're like, "Wow, you know, why is that that person doing that?" And so, just breaking those barriers down—that's what Camp Exceptional is about. It's just bringing kids together of all different abilities. We got kids um, that are there for the leadership skills and empathy, and 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 you know, working and coming together and, and building that compassion. And then hopefully, you know, they take it back in their community and back to their schools and they go up to that kid that maybe kids are kind of uh, hesitant to go up to at first um, and kind of, you know, break the ice. And, and then when they get to know each other, they realize they have some um, similarities and in interests. Um, and so, you know, that's what it's about. And we, we get a lot of volunteers uh, coming out and they get uh, – positive experiences out of it too. Uh, we have some volunteers that have been there almost, you know, every year and they come back. Yeah. 
And those campers, uh, there are some campers now that started, they've been to all nine camps, and now they're going to be working as camp counselors. And I think it's really cool to see kind of them grow up in the camp and understand it. The culture of that camp is amazing. It's phenomenal. And uh, in the very beginning, um, you, you know, I, I got to be honest with you, in year one, I had never seen you put on an event. I've never seen you do anything. <laughs> I got to be honest with you. I was a little nervous. I was like, okay, does he know what he's doing? I've never seen him do this. Like, we got a bunch of kids yeah. in one place. He, he kept calling me up. Are you ready? Are, are we good? Are we ready? We got and, this, John. And you did it. Like, and, and it was phenomenal. It was better than I could have imagined. And the kids at the end of the week are all crying because they don't want it to end. And I think it's really a, a special camp. It's really a relationship camp as much as a sports camp. But uh, credit to you and your team for putting that together. You uh, drove up. Uh, you got three children. Your oldest, Jackson is uh had applied at oregon state and is enrolled in oregon state he will be a freshman next year he's following his cousin at oregon state your other two uh toured the campus at the university of oregon today it seems to me like uh everybody's headed to the northwest you know uh you know jackson was set you know coming up here every year he saw what oregon is like and uh so he he had some he got a couple of you know small offers to play uh college uh soccer but decided uh Oregon State was the place um and he's looking into like a business marketing and maybe even some sports marketing How are you guys doing with that you know cuz I know uh when we dropped the oldest off at college it was weird like I I didn't know whether to cry or be excited for her. I think we've been so busy because, you know, once you get uh, accepted, that's when the real work starts right. for the parents because then you have all this stuff to do and make sure that they're uh, checking their email. Um, but I don't think it's hit us yet. Yeah. I think it'll hit us when we actually are driving them up and then dropping them off and saying. 100%. I'm going to tell you, you should make a list right now. This is what I regret. I'm going to just give you my regret. And anybody listening who's sending a kid off to college, here's here's my list of things. You got to uh, make a list yourself of what is it you absolutely want your kid to know. There'd be like three or four things. Like you have to check the box on these things. And for me, it was weird stuff. It was all safety related. It was, um, you know, I wanted her, I wanted her to know how to lock her bike up and unlock her bike. That was really important to me for some reason. Not so important to her. Yeah. But I didn't go through that with her until we were actually dropping her off and she was so distracted with moving in meeting people saying hi to the neighbors whatnot i left going gosh i should have gone over that at home right that was something else and then i can remember too i wrote her a letter really long heartfelt letter like you know this you know from dad to daughter and then one of the things i said to her was you know you don't take a drink from someone you know, unless you've seen them pour the drink you know i was trying yeah. to trying to keep her out of a bad situation right. But I realized that's all stuff I could have talked about at home. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know, you know, the wife's been on the, you know, the different uh, uh, avenues where parents share tips and stuff. So I think that's been helpful. But, um, you know, you just want them to be safe, number yeah. one. And <laughs> what Now, what did your, your uh, second oldest think about the campus at Oregon? Uh, you know, uh, she's like, well, it's nice now, but I'm not, I'm not sure about all the rain. So, uh, she, you know, we come from where it doesn't yeah, rain and right. so she likes the sunshine. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Camp Exceptional is next week. Uh, thank you for you and your team coming up every year to put this thing on because I know it makes, you know, for some of these kids, it is the highlight of their summer. Like we hear that over and over. They look forward to the camp. It's really hard to get into the camp now because, 
everybody who participates in it signs back up for next year. So every year there's only like 20 open spots. So any chance you guys would want to do like two or three sessions, make it an all summer thing? No? Well, you've seen, Come us. On. You've seen us on Friday. You know, my voice is gone by Thursday. Yeah. And, uh... Well, and shout out to Portland State. Like they send out football players, basketball players to help out. And what does that mean to you? I mean, it, it doesn't happen without our volunteers. And uh, Portland State has been great uh, every year coming out and supporting the, the, the kids. And like you said, in the beginning, it's kind of everybody's kind of like, you know, just getting a, to feel each other. And by Friday, there's hugs and high fives and kids are crying. And, you know, you have parents, too, that sometimes with a special needs uh, kid, they either he are hesitant to sign their kid up or they um, have been let down because, um, you know, the, the accommodations, the adaptations are not really uh, put in place. And so you, you see parents, too on that Thursday or Friday crying and saying, you just come, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And so we always tell them like, this is the place to come and, and try it because, uh, we, we do I, I, we can. I wish you could have been there in September because Portland state football held camp exceptional day out at Hillsborough stadium. They played a game. They invited all the kids from the camp there and the kids all sat in the same section and they made signs for the players who had supported them during the camp. It's great. And I literally was, my eyes were glassy the whole game because those kids, the, those football players to the kids, like they're not aware that, hey, this is the big sky. It's not like power five football and this is in Alabama and Georgia, but you might as well have been the NFL to those kids right. Right. because they see those, those guys as larger than life. And more than once I heard, that that was my team leader yeah. who just caught a pass. Yeah. That was my team leader who just, his name, I heard his name on the PA. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, being in athletics, it's demanding with everything that they have to do academically and with practices and trainings and uh, meetings. Um, and then, you know, sometimes you get asked to do things. These guys... You know, they volunteer, the ones that have been to it, and they share. They come back and share with some, some of the other uh, teammates, and they all want to raise their hand and, and volunteer and come on out. And it is. It's rewarding for everybody. And after the game at, out at Hillsborough Stadium, the kids that were the campers, they're like ages 5 to 15, they lined up outside the locker room, and they got autographs, and they got pictures. And you should have seen the players' faces, the Portland State players. They walked out. They were not used to seeing fans who were waiting for them to say thank you, yeah. but it was a really cool experience. Bruce Barnum's program, you know, say what you want about wins, losses, whatever. Of course, that's what they'll be judged on ultimately, but they have bought into this big time. He says he's bringing the entire team out for the final day to see the exceptional circle. Awesome. Oh, yeah. So you're going to get like 90 football players out there <laughs> yelling and screaming. All right, that's my brother, Ben. I want you to leave it here. More ahead, Anna will pop in. Who knows? Maybe Aunt Marlene will make a make a hey, visit on the show today. Right. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. How many Canzanos does it take to put on a radio show? That's today's question. We had my dad visit in hour one. My brother just popped on to start hour two. Anna's now in studio. What's it like uh, to sit out there in the uh, non-studio area of our house and hear my dad get interviewed? 
It's awesome because all the grandkids were gathered around and listening. It was like a scene out of the 50s, you know, where it's like before television, you just sat around and listened to the radio and heard people tell stories. I've never seen the grandkids actually pay attention that closely to his stories, except that it was like coming through the radio. It was charming. It, it, it's neat. It's weird for me because... I I know how to interview people, but I'm not quite sure how to interview my own dad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, do you find yourself not using the same strategies or what? No, because here's the here's the thing. Like when I'm interviewing somebody, I am. It's really easy for me to put myself in the shoes of the listener, and that's what I do, right? Yeah. And I put myself in the shoes of the listener. I I actually listen to the person when I'm interviewing them, and then I ask the questions that come in pop into my head as they're talking mm -hmm. but with my dad I've known my dad for 50 years right okay right and so I know a lot about his story and him and so there aren't natural curiosities that I think the listener would have so I almost have to disassociate <laughs> a little bit yeah and that's funny because I feel like it would be more of an advantage the fact that you do know a lot of these stories so you can help tee him up and yeah. highlight you know the more interesting stuff it, that it he is said. but then I go to ask him a question sometimes and I don't know if you guys picked up on this Stephen or Sean but I go to ask him a question and I realize he's leaving out part of the story because he knows I know it oh. and so <laughs> and so I have to back him up yeah and then I go well what well wait a minute tell me about you know and I play dumb almost, right. even though I know, I know the story. That's funny. So you have to kind of, you know, I don't know, like Sean, Steven, you know, you tell me. Yeah, it's like he's a radio veteran already. He's helping you out, you know. He, yeah. kn he knows that you're struggling a little bit, so he's going to help you out. We didn't, add, we didn't get to the Dutch Bros story. Oh, don't make him tell yeah, I'm that story. By that. <laughs> he does not want to talk about For that story. For people who don't know the story, we talked about it all over this show yesterday, a couple days. But Dad likes Dutch Bros. He enjoys the experience of the Dutch Bros. Like, you know, it's not just about the coffee and the sugar. So, for him, the caffeine and the sugar. He uh, gets in the drive-thru. It's a hot day. It's in the 90s. And the uh, barista, always enthusiastic at the Dutch Bros., greets him with the, hey, how's it going today? And he says, 94 today, because he's just trying to make small talk. <laughs> and she says, happy birthday. <laughs> so he was crushed at that moment. Because he's like, do I look 94? <laughs> like, what is wrong? He certainly didn't sound like 94. <laughs> he's He's in his 70s. You know, it's amazing because, you know, we talk a lot. Like, we Before he came on the show, we were talking about the aging process and how getting old sucks. You know, your body starts to fall apart. But he's still got his brain. Like, I'm amazed at the details of, you know, things that he remembers from so long ago. I can't even remember what I did last week. I'm I'm in trouble when I'm his age is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> well, I think I, it's neat for me to interview. I, I, it's weird. I'm getting a lot of feedback on social media, people following on Twitter and other places, friends texting me saying how much they're enjoying that interview. But uh, for me, I don't want to overdo it. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I realize that stuff that's important to me may not be important to the listener. <laughs> you know? I'm not arrogant enough to think that like everything that I care about, everybody cares about. Yeah, but your dad's lived a pretty interesting life, though. The fact that he and your mom you know, gallivanted around the country and also up to Canada in a VW van while he was playing baseball and everything that they went through. I mean, the fact that they traveled from city to city like that, 
that they were on the East Coast and even in Washington in the Tri-Cities and all the places they went. I mean, they've got a lot of stories to tell. They're yeah. like walking history. Yeah. The rest so. of us, we've done nothing. You know? <laughs> I know. No. It makes you feel like it. Well, oh. I just, I can't imagine, because my dad was one of those kids that was, you know, he turned 17 his senior year, midway through. He was a young senior yeah. in high school. He should have been a junior. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he was 16 years old when his senior year started. Wow. So he was 17 when he graduated. And so the part of the story about him signing with the agent, you know, the scout for the, for the Mets, is that, you know, he couldn't sign. His parents had to sign the contract. <laughs> and that, was an, that would have been an interesting negotiation because my grandmother and grandfather were – Obviously, you know, they they came from immigrant families yeah. that had come from Italy to the to the eastern part of the United States and they the whole push for them was education and opportunity. Mm -hmm. Like they sacrificed. There were sacrifices made. People moved, picked up everything, left everything behind and moved. And so to have your 17-year-old high school senior go, "I want to go play a game." <laughs> and they're going to pay me $8,000 today. Like that, I, I remember talking to my grandmother about that. It was not an easy family decision. I bet. You know, nowadays, what do we do? Everybody's thinking about You're it. You're angling for You're it. You're angling for You're it. You're hiring <laughs> private coaches to kid, try and get your kid to that stage. A kid looks pretty good in the batter's box. I know it's T-ball, but this kid might just get a scully, you know? A scully. Yeah. A Don't scully. play any other sports. Just focus on one. Yeah, I know you're six, but you're going to be a one-sport athlete from now on. <laughs> Never mind the uh, injuries you'll have when you're 12 and the surgery at 13 and 14. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I just, I don't know. Like, Stephen, you have kids. Uh, Sean, one day you will have children. This Tinder thing goes well. And then uh, every day, every day. It's like check. That's the daily Tinder reference. Yeah. If we should be, this is brought to you by Tinder. Yeah, come on. You know, somebody yeah. in sales, get Who on Who hasn't that. figured that out yet? I'm actually using Hinge more these days, but yeah, go ahead. Oh, Hinge. There you go, Hinge. What's the difference? It's just different. It's just oh. different. Tell us. Uh, I don't have to well, download the app. Well, it must be better in some way. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just kind of the way that you can um, you can share more information about yourself and other people share more information about themselves on their profile. I can't believe I'm talking about dating apps again on this show right now. Yeah, see? Um, Daily. Yeah, it's just, and then it's just, you know, different crowd, different crowd on there, maybe a better crowd um, as well, so. Better in what way? More attractive, more interesting? I think you know the answer, yeah. More highly educated? Yeah, I think soulful? you figured it out. What do you mean? You're saying people on Tinder are not soulful? No, nah, huh? they're all great. They're all great, you know? They're all yeah. great. But what I'm getting at is I think it's one of the hardest things, and, and listeners, you can back me up on this if you have kids. I think it's one of the hardest things to be at a sporting event or watch your kid participate in something because you want them to succeed. But down deep, if we're really talking like from a non-emotional Dr. Mr. Spock angle here, mm -hmm. it's probably healthy for your kid to struggle a little bit and not just have success, success, success all the time so that, you know, as they encounter things as they grow up, they have dealt with adversity as children where parents do not intervene. But it's one of the hardest things ever. And I don't know, Stephen, if you've had this experience, like even to the point where when our let's take it away from sports. If our kids are having a disagreement, there's part of me that wants to jump in and fix it for them. But I know the better thing is to let them kind of hash it out. Yeah, no. And, and that happens to me all the time because 
the kids do stress me out. I have two kids, seven and three, and they do stress me out a lot. Like, not going to lie about it. And so uh, when they do fight, my wife can, like, sense just my just frustration. And she's like, hey, just let them figure it out. You can go away and come back later. And so, you know, I give her a lot of credit for that. But, you know, going to sports as well, like, my oldest, when he first started playing soccer, he wasn't on the best teams and he struggled and he didn't you know, necessarily like it. But then he kind of figured it out like, OK, I need to be better. And then it's more fun when I'm actually trying hard and I perform it better. So now he's actually gotten the hang of it and it's actually pretty good. That's good. It's really good. Anna, how, where do you stand on that? I think we've done a pretty good job with the sports part of this. Yeah, because I think the job, my job helps a little bit in mm -hmm. that. I've seen parents lose their minds. Yeah. I don't want to be like those parents who lose their minds. And so I almost go in going, this is not about a scholarship. This is about personal development and growth and doing something healthy. But I got to admit, like, you know, our youngest, when she scores five goals in a soccer game, I, my wheels start to go. You know, <laughs> should we be pushing her harder? <laughs> Let's get her into Thorne's camp right yeah. now. Um, no, I think where you and I struggle is – uh, when we relent, and when I say we, I mean you, and buy them things. Like, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm totally okay with them being disappointed at a store because they want something, and I'm just not going to buy it for them because that's not why we're there. And you're, they already know. They yes, just, just yesterday, they were like, oh, Dad's the softy. Yeah, Dad will get us what we that. want. So they know already that uh, if they want something, yeah, but they I also. There was a there was a moment last night in this household yeah. where our middle child she yeah. wanted to have the dog sleep in her bed with her. Okay. Okay. I I I'm not a let's sleep with the pets guy. Okay? <laughs> right. I grew up we had animals. Yeah. Okay? We had I had pigs, we had lambs, we had rabbits, we had chickens, my sister had a horse. There was a steer <laughs> one time that we had for a couple years. Uh, we had dogs, we had cats, you know, uh -huh. none of them slept in my bed. The steer didn't never, sleep in your bed. Never, <laughs> never slept in my bed. So I, I kind of think there should be a separation of church and state yeah. when it comes to these things. But um, the middle daughter wanted the dog mm -hmm. in bed with her, and I said no. Yeah. And then I heard her. Yeah. She went to you. Yeah. And she said, hey, Mom, what do you think about the dog? And and you you said, what does Dad think? Yeah. And she said brilliantly, He's not sure. <laughs> I could have yelled across the house, oh, I'm sure, but I wanted to see what was going to happen. She ended up with the dog sleeping uh, with her last night. I think the moral of the story is that we need a more unified front on our yeah. decision-making and parenting I actually think it's healthy because we're teaching her and training her to find a way. I see. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, the other thing I was thinking as you were interviewing your dad not all of us have the opportunity to do that. Obviously, not all of us host a radio show. But if our parents are still alive, and thankfully yours are and, and mine are as well, like I, you know, and, and if you're listening, like take that opportunity, if your parents are still around, to just sit them down. And, you know, if you feel inclined, throw out a recorder of some kind. Most of us have the ability to at least record voices on our phones now, if not a video. You know, and just ask your parents some questions about the life they had growing up because you just never know. You never know how much time that you have with your parents, and it's the kind of thing that you're going to go back someday and very likely cherish. 
and it's not even necessarily for you. It's like if you've got kids in the family, they don't have to be even your own kids. It could be nieces and nephews. Like that is archival family heritage stuff that is really worth preserving because you just never know when that loved one is not going to be around to tell those stories in, in the first person and, and relay part of their family history and what is essentially your family history. I wrote about my parents visiting yesterday. And, uh, you know, I, what I've noticed lately is, you know, when, when someone passes away, like an actor, a famous person passes away, um, I always look at the age, right? How old were they? I never used to do that. But now that I have parents who are in their 70s, I did note, you know, that, you know, Daryl LaMonica passed away in, in earlier in the spring. He was 80. Mm -hmm. It's not that much older than my dad. Right. Right. Uh, William Hurt died in March. He was 71. He's younger than both right. my parents. Right. right. So I started thinking about that. So I wrote that. And then, I, Anna, to your point, somebody uh, wrote me a note after reading it, and he said, he did a he did a, a, a little project with his own father a couple of years ago. He sat down with a recorder and just started asking questions, interviewing like things that he knew, things that he didn't. He just wanted it on tape. Right. He got eight hours. Wow. Eight hours <laughs> of interviews. He said he didn't set out to get eight hours, but yeah. he ended up with eight hours. He said his dad passed away a year ago. He said he did not listen to those tapes for a couple of few years. Well, he probably couldn't. He yeah. said, no, but he said he just never thought to listen to him. He said he yeah. pulled them back out a couple months ago, and he listened to him, and he said he was so grateful that he had interviewed his dad and got a chance to get him on tape telling yeah. stories. I did it with my grandfather when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. I mm -hmm. sat down, and I, I basically interviewed him like it was a book report, got a couple of hours of video footage that way. Yeah. So, yes, to listeners out there, if you have grandparents, aunts, uncles, parents – uh, that are still around, and if you are a parent who's still around, tell your kids, hey, don't you want to get me on tape? I got some <laughs> things to say. Because generationally, I do think we can learn a lot about oh, ourselves from so that history. And like the question I always love to ask too is, you know, what are the things that you would do differently? What are the mistakes that you made that you would hope that, you know, my generation or the future generations would avoid? Because there's so much wisdom in people who have lived through those experiences. And I really think, like, that's a big part of uh, a lot of people understanding who they are. Like, to understand where you came from and to have that sense of grounding and not just be, like, this lone person in the wind in this country, um, it, it's, there, it does make a difference. Yeah, and, and explains things. There's things that need explaining yeah. that you may not even realize. That, you know, I always go back to that story that, you know, I read one time about a family that had tradition. Family traditions are always interesting to me. I'm fascinated by tradition. <laughs> right. And, and people who don't have tradition. I'm yeah. fascinated by that, too. Like, why don't you have tradition? Right. Like, give me the backstory there. Uh, but there is a family that uh, every Thanksgiving they cut the turkey in half before they cooked it. Yeah. They cooked it like one half and the other in a in a uh, baking tray or uh -huh. a dish, right? Yeah. And slide it into the oven. And so finally somebody said, like, why do we do this? <laughs> why do we cut the turkey in half every year? And nobody knew. Yeah. And then they started asking the elders in the family, like, hey, who started this? Uh -huh. And they traced it back to, like, two generations before, grandma had a kitchen that had a tiny oven that couldn't fit a turkey. 
So they cut it in half to cook it. And then subsequent generations, they didn't know why they were doing it, just kept cutting the turkey in half and cooking it. And I, but, I, but I think that's so important to think about that. There are things that you do in your family, traditions you can create, that just become part of who you are. Do you have family traditions, Sean, Stephen, like Anna, do you have family traditions? I want to talk about that coming up. After the break, family traditions. And if you have a family tradition, whether it's sports-related or not, I love the sports ones, I want to hear from you. 503-417-7575. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'll tell you what family tradition we have started every summer this week, every year for the last decade. We, uh, we have hosted 22 people at our house for uh, what ends up being Camp Exceptional Week, the summer camp that the BFT Foundation runs. Anna, did you have you guys weren't didn't have traditional traditions? No, our tradition was to not have tradition. <laughs> our tradition was to be totally dysfunctional and chaotic. But that's like, a tradition. Give me an idea from a family that immigrates from Taiwan to the United States in, what are we talking about, 1979? November of 1979, yes. Okay, November 1979, you come to the U.S. Mount St. Helens erupts. Uh, before that, Not, uh, no. a massive like freezing rainstorm, like the one that we had a couple of years ago. Yeah. So you had a freezing rainstorm. Yeah, big freezing rainstorm. Then the volcano blew. Then the volcano blew. But, yeah, we thought the world was like upside down. But give me an idea, like Thanksgiving, Easter... Christmas, 4th of July, those are landmark holidays uh-huh. for most American families. Yeah. Did you did you guys participate in any of that? The only way that I participated in any of those eventually was if I was, like, with friends, you know, at their houses. And eventually, like, my stepdad taught me a lot about American everything, humor, music, traditions like if it weren't for him i probably would still not fully understand christmas easter and these kind of things i knew very early on when we were dating we had like a i think it was a thanksgiving and your family showed up with seafood and (laughs) i went i went oh no 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 live seafood no 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 like fresh out of like seafood that was still moving what are we doing And then you told me a story. I think your mom gave you a birthday present or a Christmas present that she wrapped uh-huh. by putting it in a suitcase. Yeah. She didn't was, wrap it. Yeah. Yeah. It was those Keds that I talked about. I was so excited to get when I was heading to middle school. I finally got a real pair of Keds. And she gave them to me for my birthday, which was right before the school year, in a suitcase. That was her method of wrapping the present. Merry Christmas. That's right. Very pragmatic. Like, why waste money on wrapping paper and bows? It's interesting because we tried watching that series Fresh Off the Boat because that is about an Asian immigrant yeah. experience. And But you're it, it hit too close to home, I think. <laughs> it just wasn't funny to me. I'm like, yeah. oh, that was just my reality. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, Stephen and Sean, family traditions. Yeah, so you were talking about, uh, first of all, just – like the older generation getting stories for them. So I have a story about that. Uh, my grandpa, he had a nickname, and his nickname was Satch, and everybody in my family wanted to know why his nickname was Satch, and he refused to tell anybody. And so even when he was sick, 
Uh, my mom debated on asking him, but they didn't want to do it just to make him mad. And so that when he died, we thought that my grandma would tell the story of how he got the nickname, and she never did. So, like, it's been a huge mystery in the family. And now my grandma has died as well. So now it's a huge mystery of why he was nicknamed Satch. And it will, no one will ever know for sure because he wouldn't tell us, but we tried to get it out of him all the time. We got to find some of his friends. How old would how old would his friends have be at Ugh. this age? Uh, they would be, I mean, late 90s. We got to find some of Satch's friends. That Satch's friends probably gave him the damn nickname. Probably. And yeah, that's that's the thing. Uh, so that was the first thing I thought of when you were talking about just stories yeah. with, you know, your your grandparents and stuff. Uh but traditions for me, uh you know, I played sports in college, so I I I'm not a big tradition guy, superstition guy, but I always made my first layup left-handed because I was really good with my right hand. And so I wanted to make sure I could still do it with my left hand just in case. So every time uh, I play basketball, I always shoot with my left hand first to make a layup first. That's that's my first tradition there. And then family wise, uh, you know, we every like Labor Day weekend, the family would always go to the beach uh, as a beach trip. But I kind of canceled that, and I said I don't really want to go anymore. And so I'm the first one to kind of cancel that tradition. So the family still goes, but not me. There you go. Back to your back to Satch's nickname. Yeah, I think that generation did a better job giving nicknames than we do now. Yeah, I can't imagine giving someone a nickname and having it be cool like Satch. Like my grandfather, he had you know his friends were Banjo, not his real name, Vinegar Face, not his real name, and I was like, you know, where <laughs> why do you guys you guys come up with the best nicknames? Like you know, all we do is we take their first and last name, we go A Rod. You know, yeah. Flo Joe. You know, we we don't know JC. what we're doing. Yeah, we don't know what we're doing. Sean, how about a fr- tradition? Pancake Sundays. Every Sunday, my dad would make us pancakes. We'd wake up and uh, you know, you walk into the kitchen and there's there's pancakes waiting for us. And it was every single Sunday. Sometimes chocolate chip, sometimes not. But even when my dad was like out of town or golfing, whatever the case may be, on Sunday morning, he would literally make pancakes and he would wrap them in tin foil and have them ready for us. Uh, you know, the expectation was that we had pancakes every single morning as a family, uh, every every single Sunday. Love that pancake Sunday. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. Sean and Sandy has a question. Sean, what's on your mind? Hey, I like the uh, traditions, and I think of food traditions. My dad did the pancakes on Sunday, and I always think of holiday foods and uh, smoking meats and, you know, smoking meat on Fourth of July and the smoked roast beef on Christmas. Mm. But did I hear you were hosting 22 people at your house? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you, you, we we talked about something a couple months ago, and I know you only have one and a half baths in your house. (laughs) No, no, no. I think we have two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a half. Yeah, still. Still. still, You better be patient. Show patience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Still. This is like the, the, what, ninth or tenth year that we've done it, so we're used to it now. It's just a lot of, uh, a lot of socks and towels everywhere for about a week and a half. That's how you do it. Socks and towels. It sounds like bags. a Griswold family summer. <laughs> yeah, more or less. Yeah. I think it's really cool for the cousins. There are there are uh, eight or nine cousins, nine's cousins, I think, that that will get a chance to like, you know, hang out with each other every summer. And they range in age from six to nineteen. So that is a good time for them. It's a lot of picking up socks and towels for the rest of us. <laughs> but it's a good time for them. Um, all right, Stephen, do I need a break here? Is that uh, right? Yeah, we do. Okay, let's take a break. We'll be right back. The 5 at 5 coming up top of the hour.
Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Top of the hour, we'll have the five at five, five biggest sports stories and what they mean. The five kind of, sort of, biggest stories is what I like to call it. Uh, Pac-12 news. I wrote it today at johnconzano.com, and if you subscribe, you already know this, but there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with the Pac-12 conference. Um, Anna, you and I were talking about this earlier. One of the aims that I have at johnconzano.com is that, you know, there's a lot of flimsy reporting, and there's a lot of guesswork that goes on out there in media today. My goal with johnconzano.com is to make people smarter in their conversations with friends and family. I want to give people high-quality, sourced, in-depth reporting, commentary. Um, you know, I've got the access to the people who are the decision makers. I want people who read me at johnconzano.com and listen to me on this radio show to know that they are getting the absolute best information. They're getting information they can't get anywhere else. It's interesting to me because it doesn't take long when people read what you write to realize that you know, what you're talking about is really well sourced. And I, I don't know, it's it's almost like uh, educational in a way to read, especially what you're writing now about what's happening with the Pac-12. It's, it's on another level to me um, because I'm personally, I, I'm learning so much just about like this, the media landscape and college sports and the money that is behind that's driving a lot of what is changing right now and so the fact that you have access and that you're talking with ad's and that you're talking with decision makers directly i think really matters you know it's it's the difference between that and somebody who's just kind of like blowing smoke and offering what they think but they don't they're not really basing it on original reporting. John Wilner and I had this conversation about a week ago where, in, you know, a lot of these national guys are good. They're, they're where they should be because they are. But there were some national reporters who it was evident they were just guessing. They were just throwing something against the wall and going, you know, this is what I think or whatnot. And I'm like, they're not talking to the right people if that's what they believe. And a lot of it was people who were, speculating that the Big 12 would cannibalize or poach some Pac-12 universities. Like, I was not at all hearing that from the Pac-12. And in fact, some of the decision makers at those very universities that were being talked about, like Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and Colorado, some of them were telling me, there's nothing to that. We're, you know, we have no imminent meeting there. And as it turns out, you know, it didn't end up come to fruition. But it was really affirming to me today. Um, I want to I want to tell you something. Like I was in contact this morning with one of the athletic directors, not in the state of Oregon, not in the state of Washington, athletic director outside the footprint. And the uh, that athletic director told me, "You have been very accurate with what is going on behind the scenes." To me, that means more than just about anything that someone could say that was nice because I that means a lot to me because what I want is I want to be the conduit between these sources and the public and the, the fans who yeah. care where their teams are. Like I know there are people listening who 
just want to know where where is my team going to be playing? Right. Who are they going to be playing? What does it mean? And and it's true. A lot of this TV stuff, it doesn't. It's nonsensical. It's out. You know, it's archaic. It's a lot to wade through. It's a know? lot. Yeah. It's a lot. And you know, we'll talk more about it on the other side of the break. But the five at five coming up. Subscribe at johnconzano.com if you're interested. The five at five still ahead. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I always view the 5 o'clock hour as the happy hour, and I, I subsequently, I also view it as, if you're just waking up from a coma, I want to catch you up on what's important in the world of sports. Like, literally, I could just see some Tom Hanks-looking character from the uh, the movie, uh, what was that movie, where he was stranded? Castaway? Yeah, Castaway. He's got a beard. Wilson! All of that. <laughs> Tom Hanks coming back to civilization and them going, what do you want? And it's not a, like a warm shower he wants. He says, give me the give me the five o'clock hour of the BFT because I'll be able to know what's going on in, in the world because I have that hour. That's how we view this. Okay, I don't know how you view it. We're going to talk about Ichiro. That's right, Ichiro in the news. He's trending. We'll talk about him this segment, plus a whole bunch of other things that are important. It's called, called, called the 5-5 five, five at 5-5. Five, five. The 5 at five. Let's go with uh, number one, Julio Rodriguez. Julio Rodriguez is the fifth player all time to have 90 hits and 20 stolen bases prior to the Major League Baseball All-Star break. That's right. This was, this dates back to 1933, this history. So it's not like, oh, in the last decade, no. Since 1933, only five players who have had 90 hits and 20 stolen bases before the All-Star break. Julio Rodriguez of the Mariners did it. He's the first to do it since dun, da, da, dun, Ichiro Suzuki, 2001 with the Mariners. There you go. Ichiro in the news. He's trending, by the way, because of that. Anna. Number two, go ahead. Well, sticking with baseball, uh, Major League Baseball is going to test the rule that would limit the shift mm. on the field. They're going to test this in the minor leagues. Uh, a team in Florida will be adding chalk lines up the middle of the infield to put yeah. an added dimension of control over where the infielders stand. You don't need to, You don't need chalk lines. The league's going to implement chalk lines behind second base, forming a kind of pie-shaped right angle. And the idea is to prohibit infielders from taking away balls that are hit up the middle that would otherwise go for base hits. I don't know that I need chalk lines. You know what I mean? Like, can't the umpire, the home plate umpire, just raise his hand and kind of wave the second baseman and be like, you need to be on this side of the bag? I don't understand why they're doing this at all. Yeah, I'm going to need you to ask your dad what he thinks about this. 
I bet he would hate it. Uh, I will. I'll do it on the commercial break, or we'll call him in during the segment. Yeah. Hey, Dad! Ask him about <laughs> the, uh, the shift. The shift goes back. Like, Ted Williams hit against the shift. This is not new. Like, this goes back. But I just think it's more prevalent today because of analytics and the ability for teams to go a 70% of the time here's where this guy hits a ball if it's a ground ball versus a fly ball whatnot interesting that they're going to experiment with it in the minor leagues I don't like any lines on the field I need the baseball field to look like a baseball field yeah I think that's dumb terrible number three in our five at five Gonzaga Michigan State they're going to play a neutral site game in basketball on November 11th. It will happen on the flight deck of the USS Abraham Lincoln on Veterans Day. They're going to an aircraft carrier to play this game. Now, there have been other games played on the aircraft carrier over the years, but Mark, Mark Few at Gonzaga called it a special opportunity. Tom Izzo be his second aircraft carrier game. He did it in 2011 when they played North Carolina on the deck of the uh, USS Carl Vinson. Izzo said it was a humbling experience. He said when he looked around and he realized this is where these guys work, this is where these guys live, this is where they they uh, risk their lives and defend our country. ESPN says that uh, they will... Uh, consider some contingencies in case there's bad weather or a war that would make the aircraft carrier unavailable but you got the USS Abraham Lincoln November 11th Michigan State against Gonzaga game will be held in the San Diego Bay and and it'll be aired on ESPN that is number three Anna number four do you want to hear about Tristan Thompson or George Foreman? Steven, what do you want? Uh, give me George Foreman. Okay. George Foreman says that he's being extorted. Two women have plans to sue him over sexual abuse allegations dating back to the 70s. The lawsuit is expected to allege that he sexually abused them then. But he is saying in a statement today, the allegations are flat out not true. He says over the last six months, the two women have, trying, have been trying to extort millions of dollars from him and his family. They're falsely claiming that he sexually abused them 45 years ago in the 70s. That's tricky. It's really tricky. Is there a statute of limitations where on, in the state that happened? I know in the state of Oregon, the statute of limitations is 12 years for the uh, crime of rape, unless it was uh, a sex assault of somebody under the age of 18. Then there is no statute of limitations in Oregon. I only know that because Brenda Tracy got the law changed. It was six years, then they expanded it to 12. I'm not seeing anything in this article about criminal allegations. Oh, These civil are suit. purely civil suits, which... I don't think there's any statute of limitations. Uh, on interesting, those. George Foreman. I I wonder how many George Foreman grills out there are in jeopardy right now. 
I didn't, his net worth is supposedly $300 million. He says that these women have been asking him since January to pay them $12.5 million each. Each of them? Each. So they want $25 mil. I, uh, I hope there's justice in that case, one way or another. How about that? Because none of us knows. We don't know if, like, you know, we don't know. I know. We don't know. We, we can't sit here and say, oh, this is a money grab. We can't because we don't know. I know. And we can't either sit here and go, you know what, George is a victim here because we don't know. Correct. That's hard. Finally, the fifth thing. By the way, I would have picked uh, Tristan Thompson. What was that one going to be? Tell you later. <laughs> Finally, the fifth thing. Oklahoma State football coach Mike Gundy said something interesting uh, as uh, to the to the new Big 12 commissioner Brett Yormark. He told the commissioner jokingly, "Don't let Texas and Oklahoma continue to participate in the league's business meetings." Gundy's been at Oklahoma State since 2005. He's a polarizing character anyway. Okay? But he says, why are we letting Texas and Oklahoma, who are going to join the SEC in 2025, why are we letting them into these meetings, business meetings? I think there are a lot of Pac-12 fans that probably feel the same way about USC and UCLA being allowed into some of the Pac-12's dealings and meetings. The truth is contractually that those entities are allowed and are included to be part of the uh, voting process for the conference all the way up until the point where they are actually out of the conference. But Gandhi said he did it jokingly and he made the remarks on stage at Big 12 Media Day today. He said it was interesting. We go to conference meetings and Oklahoma and Texas are in there. They're in the conference but I'm guessing when they leave they're just scratching down things that can help them when they go to the SEC. Meanwhile, Brett Yormark talked about the mission of the Big 12. He's the brand new commissioner. He's been on the job for like four hours. Conference composition is once again at the forefront of college athletics. As such, I have been very involved with the stakeholders both inside and outside the Big 12 regarding our path forward and opportunities to grow both the Big 12 brand and business. I think what the Big 12 is hoping is that Texas and Oklahoma opt out of the conference early. If they go early, they will pay a collective $80 million to the remaining members. If they wait until July of 2025 when their grant of rights expires, they'll leave for free. How long can Texas and Oklahoma afford to stay in the Big 12 is an important question. That is our five at five five biggest kind of sort of things going on in the world if you're just out of a coma now you know all right give us tristan thompson if we if it was called the six at six yeah, it's like the five plus one yeah the plus one uh well he's having another baby with chloe kardashian born via surrogate this baby may have already been born or the birth is imminent but i guess he and chloe kardashian you know They've been on, they've been off, they've been back on and then off again. Right now, I think they're off. So they're actually technically apart, but they are having a second child together. That's strange.
I think I made the right call with Foreman. <laughs> yeah, you did. You got it right. <laughs> did you? Steven. Is what? there a right or wrong? I mean, they're both bad, but I mean, you know. This is one of the slowest sports news days. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I got here and I was looking to cut some audio like I always do. I had nothing to cut besides really? that Big 12. Yeah, besides the Big 12 meeting, there was nothing going on. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, we needed a couple of George Foreman cuts, you know? little Never came to mind. Little Tristan Thompson in our in our lives. Tristan Thompson. And uh, by, by the way, how do you feel about you know someone having a baby via surrogate? Oh, it's fine. Wait I'm a minute, I didn't finish the question. Okay, what? While you're not in a relationship. Oh, that's kind of like you know I don't want to compare pet ownership to like parenthood. Yeah. Because you know don't at me on that one is what I'm saying. <laughs> but like you wouldn't even. Like, I don't think it's a good idea to, to, to get a pet together if you're not together. Uh-huh. And they're having a child together. Yeah. And they're not together. And, and it's not like, like, there are circumstances. I know it's complicated. There's circumstances sometimes where, sure. you know, um, you are the paternal, you're the parents of the child. But it feels like this took planning. Yeah. And so I think they planned it when they were together. And now they're not together, but you can't, like, undo a surrogacy. Well, I guess that's right. Right? Okay. So, and by the way, he also had, a like, a son with some other woman last December, and that he later confirmed the paternity results along with the po- Is that public why they aren't apology together? to Chloe. I don't know. I can't keep track of them. There's part of me that doesn't even want to talk about them because I'm so sick of the Kardashians. Yeah. But then there's part of me that's just kind of like the period interest well, I'll tell you one thing that's sure. Uh, one thing that is 100% uh, fact. What? It, this doesn't end well for Tristan Thompson. <laughs> it, By the way, is he even like a decent NBA player? Steven, he, would you consider he... him a decent NBA player? I would. I mean, he yeah. He's been in the league for a long time. Yeah, so he's yeah. old. He's old. Oh, yes. He's old. <laughs> old yeah. for NBA standards. Old. Like, <laughs> yeah. All of like 36. He's out of his prime. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, like, if he hasn't been paying attention to what happens to men in that Kardashian orbit, you know, it, you know, it's, it doesn't go well. Uh, you know, Chris Humphreys and it, uh, Bruce Reggie Jenner, Conway, Kanye, Reggie Bush, uh, Pete Davidson and, and Tristan Thompson are playing with fire, if you ask me. Like, this ends poorly. Okay? I don't know how it ends, but it ends. And it, they, and it ain't good because that Kardashian machine is going to chew them up and yeah. spit them out. Yeah. But I understand what Anna's saying because it, it's, it's a show, right? And so she's so invested in the show, she has to see what the ending is. But the problem with the Kardashians <laughs> is that it's probably not going to end for a long time because <laughs> they're ready. always around. And it's just going to be the children now. The show will just transform into whatever West and East or whatever those kids are named. <laughs> You know, yeah, it'll never end. You know, I know. For a while, we thought they were gonna go away, right? Because yeah. uh, they were leaving Bravo, but then they just hopped up on Hulu or whatever else they're on now. I don't know. Well, here's the thing, because as I understand, I don't watch the show. Okay. Yeah. But as I understand this, um, there was a Tristan Thompson had a scandal, right? So he had a baby with another woman. Yeah. While he was with Chloe. Yeah. Okay. So they called it a paternity scandal. Right. But I don't think it was a paternity scandal. It was just a scandal. <laughs> okay. He had a baby with someone else. So then he and Chloe decide they're going to have a baby via surrogate. Yeah. Okay. This is before he revealed that he was already having a baby with someone else. Mm-hmm. Couldn't he have just said to her, 
you know what? I already got one on the way. Mm -hmm. You know, that wouldn't have been okay. Could have. Could have. <laughs> he could have? Could have. Yeah. yeah, but now you're talking about him. He's I back guess. in the news. I know. He's I in know. the news. Maybe we should just make this a Kardashian-free zone. You know? I don't know. But look at, I'll even add Lamar Odom to the list. Let's go through the list of guys who it didn't go well for. <laughs> Lamar Odom, Kanye West, Bruce Jenner. He's on the cover of Wheaties, okay? <laughs> He didn't. He went into the Kardashian empire. Yeah. Bruce Jenner, and you know, bless him. He found who he was. But yeah. I'm also going to hold him up as Lamar Odom, Chris Je Humphreys, uh, you know, Kanye, Pete Davidson. I pray for you, my friend. I and Tristan Thompson. This doesn't. You know, may you may think you know what you're doing. You don't. The rest of us do. This doesn't end well for any of them. Okay. Public service announcement. There you go. Wait, is that too hot a topic to talk about? No. I think when you introduce the Bruce Jenner part of it, it gets uncomfortable for some Well, people. I mean, you could argue he's happy now, you know, yeah. as Caitlyn Jenner, that she's happy but now. But that should not Jenner. have been on a reality television show. <laughs> like, that shouldn't have had to happen that way, and I wonder how much the Kardashian influence wanted that so badly to be part of the show. Yeah. And, you know, and if Bruce Jenner and... Caitlyn Jenner now did this on his own behind the scenes, not on a reality television show. Mm -hmm. I would have thought, you know, good for him. He found who he was mm -hmm. or is, and that's good. Or she. Mm -hmm. And But because it happened on a reality television show, I wonder how much the Kardashians were kind of elbowing him and pushing him towards, hey, this is, you know. Let's do this and make it part of the show. Mm, yeah, I don't know. He's really not part of the show at all. But he anymore. was. He was. No. So after that transformation. At the time, so. though, he, wasn't he right in the thick he of that? He was. He was. Do you think there was any part of them that wanted the publicity that came along with that? Taking the world's greatest athlete. I wouldn't hold anything against them in the name of drama and higher ratings. Yeah. I mean, I think that's been shown. Like, I also know. just found out we've been underestimating the amount of players that they've dated. I oh, just, there's a lot more. There's let's a do lot it. More. I just, I just Googled it. Kardashian basketball team. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we got uh, Kendall Jenner and Ben Simmons. Currently, right? Okay. Still. Let's, is it going well for Ben Simmons? <laughs> I don't no, think so. No, no, no. Okay. Let's uh, find, a, let's find someone player. who's been in. Is the, the mailman, did it go okay for him after Yeah, Devin Booker, Devin Booker, you know, he got eliminated pretty harshly. But other than that, he's a good basketball player. He's currently okay. dating Kylie Jenner. Uh, back in the day, Khloe Kardashian and Rashad McCants. Not great. Okay. Khloe oh, Kardashian. I didn't know that. Khloe Kardashian and Lamar Odom, we talked about. Yeah. Uh, Chris Humphries, we talked about. Kendall Jenner and Chandler Parsons. Is he? That who's that? That ended up badly. Who's for that? He's what sport does he play? Basketball. Basketball. Okay. Retired. Another. Why are, why are they so obsessed with the NBA? Like, why haven't Kyle they like Kuzma. delved into other other professionals? Okay, let's chalk up winner or loser after we say each guy. <laughs> ben <laughs> Simmons. Loser. Okay. Chris Humphreys. Loser. Loser. <laughs> Lamar Odom. Eh, uh, well, I, that one's a little bit uh, more complicated. Yeah, he lost. Okay. It, it, it ended badly he for him. He almost died. Yeah. Right. yeah, that's why I'm not, I'm not willing to just yell loser for him. <laughs> well, I don't mean he is a loser. Let's just say thumbs yeah. up, thumbs down for, for his involvement there. Like better like better before the Kardashians oh. or worse, right? Okay. That's really the Better before or, a, or after. Okay. So uh, how about Booker? 
He's a winner. He's a winner. He got I, paid. He's he gets so much uh, money. He he okay. got Damian Lillard money. All right, but he got out of the uh, he got in and out, so to speak. Uh, he's who else still, we got? He's, he's dating Kylie Jenner no, right now. Oh, he's Kaylee. still in yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it. It ain't over. Well. It's, in, well. it's incomplete. <laughs> okay. DeAndre Ayton's out. The Suns are going down. What else? Who else did they date? Ah, so, uh, there was a fl- there, yeah, McCants, that's an L. There was that's a fling a- between Chloe and James Harden in the summer of 2015. Mm. Um, about, about when it changed for Harden. Yep. <laughs> Kendall Jenner dated Jordan Clarkson for a few months in 2016. And then uh, Kendall Jenner and Blake Griffin as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And what happened to Blake Griffin? It went downhill. That, that was 2017, 2018. I'm telling you. He hasn't been good since. This is like the biblical story of Samson and Delilah. I mean, <laughs> that's what the Kardashians are to, right now. Oh, that's why Pete Davidson. I worry for him. Travis Scott. You guys know him? Yeah. He uh, His his career really went downhill after, uh, I think it was Kylie that he was with. And, man, he's gotten in some trouble since then. Yeah, she's the one that's into rappers, like more rappers. But don't you think that, you know, Kim Kardashian and, yeah. Pete, and Pete Davidson was kind of Kim going, I've done the NFL, I've done NBA, my sister's, uh, you know, everybody's No, it wasn't Kim rap. at all. It was whatever focus group that they yeah. assembled – that they decided, like, from a marketing standpoint, she needed to capture a different segment of the audience. Yeah. And they went, huh, Comedians. who's the best representation yeah. of that? Because she had, she had done uh, musicians with Ray J and Kanye. Kanye. Yeah. And they, she was married to Kanye for a bit, and that really crushed Kanye, like, publicly. Yeah. So. Because then you realize you're just being used because they want your audience. They don't really, you know, she, there may have been some love there. But I think she was in love with his audience more than anything. And it empowers them when they, who come, like, never do they fall. You know, it's always, you know, the people. I'm telling you. It was interesting, you know, they, she was never invited to the Met Gala until she was with Kanye. And that yeah. was the first time that she got to go was because he was invited. And Damn right. she was his plus one. I'm telling you, it, right now, if Sean told me, hey, I matched on Hinge <laughs> with <laughs> one of the Kardashians. Courtney. <laughs> I would take his phone from him. <laughs> I say do it for the show, but I mean, do it for maybe, the maybe show. they're in their boardroom right now and they're like, we need to be with one of the 750 the game producers. We need the Portland That's audience. What we, need. <laughs> we need the Portland we need audience. Someone from the BFT. Hell, heaven help us if that happens. And by the way, I'll start the GoFundMe for your therapy for when that relationship ends. Uh, I, you better buyer beware is what I'm saying to the NBA players and the rappers and the comedians. Buyer beware, okay. <laughs> Is that an old person thing to say? <laughs> All right, leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Big 12 Media Day today as the new commissioner for the Big 12 Conference, Brett Yormark, who comes from the entertainment world, uh, he uh, got a chance to kind of speak publicly and a lot of people interested in what's going on with uh, uh, the Big 12 and whether or not, you know, where will they survive, you know, how do they fit into this uh, Pac-12 question. Uh, Brett Yormark, um, previously, uh, he worked for Rock Nation, 
And he sort of had a job that was similar to what George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, had. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, he was working with basically the Brooklyn Nets, and he was working with Jay-Z and in the entertainment world, and, you know, as George Klyovkov was working in Vegas with MGM Entertainment. So it's really interesting to hear these guys talk because they're not traditional sports executives. Brett Yormark uh, made a comment today at Big 12 Media Day. He basically said, we're open for business. Listen. What excites me most about joining the Big 12 is the transformative moment in front of all of us today. We have an opportunity to grow and build the Big 12 brand and business. Be aspirational. Define our point of difference. All while never losing our commitment to always compete and develop our student athletes at the highest levels. Moments like these do not happen often, and we must seize them and make the most of them. It will require incredible work and collaboration. One thing is for sure, there is no doubt the Big 12 is open for business. We will leave no stone unturned to drive value for the conference. Just as I pledge to the board, we will be bold and humble, aggressive and thoughtful, and innovative and creative, all in an effort to position the conference in a way that not only grows the Big 12 brand and business, but makes us a bit more contemporary. He can talk it. He can turn a phrase. Um, I want to play a little more of her of Brett Yormark before I, you know, sort of unpack it all. But I think he's coming into a really he's obviously coming into a really transformative time in college sports, and. His first day on the job was the day that USC and UCLA left. So uh, there's a whole bunch of of tentacles to this thing. But he went on to talk about their upcoming media rights negotiation. He says it's important. No kidding. Here's uh, your mark. I will work very closely with our member institutions to ensure we are prepared to seize opportunities that benefit our league. And if those happen within the first 60 days, we will move as fast as we need to. One thing is crystal clear. There is no higher priority than to best position the Big 12 for its upcoming multimedia rights negotiations. Everything we do must create momentum for these negotiations, as well as building the, the value of the Big 12 brand and business. There it is. He wants to improve the value. But how are you going to do that? Where are you going to look? Who are those partners going to be if your conference, and let's face it, the Big 12 has kind of the same problem that the Pac-12 has in that you are a spectator right now watching the Big 10 and the SEC line up these mega conferences. And in the uh, case of the Big 12 conference, you have um, you know, only about 13 million households, television households, in your footprint right now. And that is a problem because the SEC, the Big Ten, and even the ACC have more than double the households. Um, your Mark talked about realignment. This is interesting. Is it possible the Big 12 could be trying to poach some Pac-12 teams? Are they first set on playing defense? Here's Brett Yormark, Big 12 Conference Commissioner. I've been actively engaged in realignment and appreciate the incredible input I've received from everyone throughout the conference. Exploration and optionality is at the forefront of what we are focused on. 
anything considered must be additive and not dilutive. Sometimes the best deals are the ones that don't get done. Best deals are the ones that don't get done. I mean, that's a clever thing to say. I don't want to be too hard on the guy. It's his first media day, and he's in a tough spot. It's not like he's sitting pretty in a conference that is, you know, with the haves. He is uh, with the have-nots right now. And the Big 12 may be open for business, but I got to tell you, like, I think the Big 12's best chance of surging, uh, they have two opportunities. One, ESPN is currently locked up with the Pac-12 in this 30-day negotiating window. It's an exclusive window. ESPN and Fox have the advantage there that they can negotiate without other partners interfering. Fox is not a player with the Pac-12. So ESPN and the Pac-12 are negotiating. If they do not come to an agreement or if they lowball the Pac-12, it could be good for the Big 12 in that I would expect Arizona State in particular, maybe Arizona, maybe Colorado and Utah, would then be candidates to be poached by the Big 12. So as your mark is talking about the deals that never get done or whatnot, I mean, the deal that he really hopes doesn't get done is ESPN partnering with the Pac-12 and then marrying them to the ACC, and then ESPN going, we would like to have Baylor and Houston along for the ride, or we would like to have Kansas and Baylor because Kansas would bring some basketball oomph to the Pac-12 conference and and present some nice matchups with Duke and North Carolina, those ACC crossover games. So I think Yormark's in a tough spot. I think they're in a worse spot than the Pac-12, even though it was widely reported early on by some of those national people that I was talking about earlier in the show. It was widely reported that the Big 12 you know, was meeting, and it felt imminent that they were going to cannibalize the Pac-12 conference. I just never heard that from anybody in the Pac-12. And I, and I reached out directly to the universities that would be most likely to be candidates to be poached. I don't want to get myself in trouble here. But some of those universities were adamant with me and told me, Konzano, this is not happening. We are not meeting with the Big 12. We do not have one foot out the door. Heard all that stuff reported like it was fact. And that's what I'm talking about. There's just some people throwing some stuff against the wall because, yeah, it feels like it's a good idea. But in the end, I think the best possible resolution for the Big 12 is either the Pac-12 not coming to an agreement with ESPN, which I feel is highly unlikely. I think ESPN is really motivated to get games in the Pacific time zone. And then secondarily, if you're the Big 12 Conference, I think the next best thing that could happen is the ACC and the Pac-12 get together. They create this Pacific Atlantic blended partnership sealed by ESPN contracts, not a handshake, and they're playing crossover games, and they go, okay, we like the state of Texas, and we don't want to kill the Big 12. We want you to live, to play another day. So what we want to do is we want to cut you in on this. And in that circumstance, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the ACC, I do think then become a formidable force when you talk about television households. And I'm just going to look at the TV households that are – available in those markets, you know, it's there is a battle for televisions that is going on right now in college football. And let me just throw these numbers out there just so you have them. And when you talk with friends and you talk with family, you know, you can you can be smarter. Uh, you know, right now, 
the ACC has 28 million households in their primary markets, 28 million. The Big Ten has 34 million after the L.A. markets come into the fold. So before the L.A. markets, they're also sitting at 28, about the same size as the ACC. They added L.A. on top of that. The SEC has 22 million households, and good for them, 22 million. Nice number, including Dallas-Fort Worth, Atlanta, Houston, Tampa, Orlando, Miami, St. Louis, Nashville. I mean, they've got some good markets, but 22 million, healthy enough to get the deal that they needed to get from ESPN. The Pac-12 is sitting at uh, uh, 19 million now. That number will drop to about 12 and a half million after the LA market is out, and the Big 12 is sitting at 10.2 million right now. They'll grow to 15 million after. Uh, schools like BYU and those who are coming into the conference come into the conference. So you get an idea that the Pac-12 and the Big 12 are largely in the same position. The big difference being that right now the Pac-12 has almost double the number of TV households. But if you marry the ACC and the Pac-12 together, you're talking about a minimum of 40 million households. It would make you the biggest player in that partnership. You throw the Big 12 on top of that, you're now at 55 million households. That is more than double what the SEC has, and it's significantly more than the 34 million that the Big Ten will have in the end. I think it's kind of interesting, and if I'm Brett Yormark, I'm on the phone with George Klyovkov going, look, if this doesn't work out for you, I'm probably coming after some of your schools. But if it does work out for you, I would still like to be friends because I feel like the Big 12 and the in the Pac-12, you know, it shouldn't be one of these has to die it, for college football to, to work and win. Uh, coming up, we'll talk more about the Blazers, the NBA, Nick Saban, crowing about competitive balance. I got some more to say about that. Can the Alabama coach who has benefited from being in the SEC really crow about competitive imbalance? Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Tomorrow on this show, in the station that you're listening to it, you will hear the bald-faced truth foundation's 10th annual celebrity golf tournament. There'll be a live broadcast, 3 to 6 p.m., as... uh, You'll get to hear uh, Mark Wasikowski, the Oregon baseball coach. You'll get to hear Jimmy Joyce, the former Major League Baseball umpire. Miss Oregon, Ariel Freytag, will be part of the broadcast. Uh, She will be on it. Mike Walter, former 49er. Alex Molden, former Oregon Duck great. Mike Jorgensen, he is the radio analyst and former Ducks quarterback. He'll be out there, and he'll be on the broadcast. And how about the Orange Express and Mark Radford? former NBA player and Oregon State star basketball player. He'll be part of the broadcast. Bobby Gross, Portland Trailblazer, number retired, number in the rafters. He'll be on the broadcast as well. Shante Leggins, the University of Portland men's basketball coach, will stop by, as will John Johnson, the Portland State athletic director. All of it benefiting kids 
and the Bald Face Truth Foundation. It really does fund Camp Exceptional, the summer camp for typical kids and special needs kids. And Sean and Steven, you guys will be on the broadcast. What are you looking forward to? Oh, I'm I'm just looking forward to being out there. It's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun and meeting all of those people that you just named and um, really just being able to talk to them. And you know, um, for each person, it's gonna be a variety of different questions. You know, for example, you get Mike Jorgensen on, and you're talking Ducks football in addition to, um, you know, uh, golfing. At, at the uh, tournament, you bring on Miss Oregon. There's just so many different characters that we'll get to get to know tomorrow, and I'm super excited about it. Yeah, you guys. Uh, how about you, Stephen? What are you looking forward to? Yeah, no, I mean, just all the local celebrities. You know, I, I just love the local stuff, and uh, you know, talk about Shantae Leggins, the University of Portland coach. They had a great season. Uh, they bring back a lot of their guys, got some recruits, and so I'm excited to watch them as a uh, college basketball junkie. Like it's a it's a bad addiction that I have. That I like to watch, uh, you know, even small college basketball, but I love it. So, you know, stuff like that just it gets me going. Yeah, and I think it'll be cool. There's golf going on, but really the golf isn't the story. It's just all these people coming together, and, you know, they've all got great stories. And you talk about Bobby Gross. Like, what was that like to be part of that championship parade? Like, you know, and Bill Walton on your team, and, and – and, uh, you know, you got Dr. Jack Ramsey. Like, you guys are going to have a good time, I think, talking to all of those people. Uh, but Gross is interesting because it, it's funny that some of these guys will play and and they have, um, you know, they, they ultimately, they're all, they share kind of a, a bond in that they're all former professional stars or athletes or they were star college players. But, like, Bobby Gross plays golf often like with Mike Walter who played football at Oregon and went on to win Super Bowl championships with the 49ers as a linebacker and they know each other they're kind of on the same circuit like because they play in a lot of golf events together uh here's Bill Walton talking about Bobby Gross and Dr. Jack Ramsey uh this is an interesting conversation I had with Walton Maybe you can bring this up with Bobby Gross tomorrow. And he would say, Bobby, this is you. Run, run, run. I need you, Bobby, to be relentless. And that was Bobby. And, oh, it was, it, it was tough on Bobby because for all my sins and for all my crimes against humanity, and Maurice Lionel, we were all there, but Jack he always took it out on Bobby. And so whenever things would go wrong, he would, he would just, Bobby, what's going on here? And you'd throw Bobby out of practice. And Bobby would say, what did I do? And Jack would just say, let's get going. I wonder if Jack Ramsey was harder on Bobby Gross for a reason. I mean, I've been on teams. There's always that one guy that the coach always, you know, holds everything against, I feel like. I think, and sometimes it's the guy that the coach knows that that guy can take it. Right. You know, because you got to, I think great coaches recognize, and you guys tell me if you, if you believe this, like we all expect to be treated the same. Everybody always says that we want, we want, we want what's fair. Treat me the same as someone else. Don't hold me to a different standard. You hold someone else. But the truth is in sports all the time, athletes are treated differently by coaches and held to different expectations by the rest of us. As as we've learned just in the world, there's different ways to learn whether you're in school and in sports. Like some people react better to being yelled at. Some people reacted better be pulled off to the side and be told, you know, politely, like, and but you know back in the day, I feel like it was mostly just yell, yell, yell. Where now we're learning, it's you know there's different <laughs> ways. So it's like with Bobby Gross, 
you know, he was probably, you know, the real leader of that team. Everyone looked up to him. And so they knew, well, if he can take a yelling from Jack Ramsey, I think we all can. I think that's probably truth. Like, you know, even with your children, let's be honest, they're not, my daughters are not listening. So I'll, I'll tell this story. Like, I do think we hold, we parent them a little different. I know that I'm harder on the youngest in the family. And I realize now that I should have been harder on the oldest. Like, you know what I mean? Do you relate yeah. to that at all, Stephen? Oh, totally. My my oldest, I would say I'm harder on him and I shouldn't be because my youngest can take it. And he, he just laughs it off. But my my oldest is a lot like me and he's very emotional and he you know shows his feelings. And so I do feel bad because I'm like, well, I know exactly how it feels because I would feel the exact same way that he is. I think, it, you know, when I look back, I think I want to say I respond better to people who will coach or, you know, judge me with a little bit of criticism. But it has to be fair criticism. Like, and I think that's what we get at. Like, I know better than anybody when I've screwed up or if the show's not good, I'm really, I leave the show, I'm frustrated, I'm disappointed. And I go, gosh, what could I have done differently? There are some days when I finish the show and I'll go back and I will listen to part of the show because I go, what went wrong there? And I realize it was me. Like, it was me. It was, you know, I should have shut up. I should have let the guests talk more or, you know. And and there are other times where I go, gosh, the show was really good. What was it? And I'll go back and I'll go, you know what? Uh, I got to do that again because it just set up nicely. And I, I recognize with both of you cats, you guys are both good on air. And it's really unusual to find people who work behind the scenes who are also good on air. And so I like bringing you guys out a little more and letting you guys shine a little bit. But I also don't want to distract you from the job you're doing behind the scenes because, Stephen, you are flying an airplane right there. Yeah, I'm pressing a lot of buttons. I'm doing a lot of things. But, uh, you know, I've been on the job for two and a half weeks. I think I'm ready to go, John. Yeah, I'm on the phone with people a lot during the show, but I think you you have the ability to see that. Like, I wonder, do you ever see, are you ever about to toss it to me and then you see that I'm yes. talking on the phone? Yeah. Yes, or I don't look and I toss to you and you don't answer and then Stephen goes in my ear. He's on the phone. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing Stephen does that's really interesting, like let's just bring this out in the open. Yeah, I've it. never had anybody do this. So normally I, I'm not someone who follows the clock well. Okay, I just don't. I kind of get into the flow of the show. I'm having fun. I'm not looking at the clock. And I, I think the show works mostly that way. It does frustrate some people because – top of the hour, bottom of the hour, you're going to do an update that should happen at, let's say, 3.30, and all of a sudden it's 3.41, and, you know, we're off time. Uh, and listeners <laughs> listeners will be aware. But I, Stephen will get in my ear, and in the last minute, you give me kind of a update, hey, you got 60 seconds left till like, the end of the show or whatnot. Yeah. And then you'll do 30 and then count me down, which is fine. But you do it like – you're doing it really fast. You go, can you tell our listeners how you do it? Like, pretend that you're giving me 60, 30, whatever. Yeah, I'll get on the yards and go, 60 seconds. Or what? Faster. Minute? You're faster than that. 30. You go, you go 30, 60, 30, 30. And the <laughs> first couple times you did it, it was jarring. But I was like, man, but is there a reason why you do it fast? You just don't want me, you want to distract me, or what are you doing? Yeah, I think it's I'm more nervous because I've had people talk in my ear when I'm on the air, and it really bothers me. So I try to a spot where you're not talking like in a mm -hmm. breath that's that's very that's very cordial of you well i appreciate it uh, you know i just noticed it nobody's ever done that normally i'll be on and they'll just start uh you know counting me down and you're right 
I'm having, I'm finishing a thought, and I'm hearing somebody go, you know, you have 30 seconds. Not, and Sean, I'm not talking about you. You're not guilty of this. But over 17 years, Stephen's the first person who has gone 30, 50, 10. As long as you can hear five. me, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I kind of can hear you. Sometimes, yeah. you know, if you're having, if you're making a thought, like, you know, but who cares about this? Listeners don't care. Well, speaking let's, of, you need to take another break, John. Let's take a break. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up top of the hour, what do we have, uh, Stephen? Are you guys hosting again? Uh, talk got, Timbers. Yeah, Talk Timbers tonight. Talk Timbers tonight. How did it go for you guys on the polls? I love the open. Oh, came I out, you guys that. came out swinging. Yeah, no, I thought it was. I thought it was pretty good. We talked about a lot of topics. Like usually, Peter only talks about maybe two or three things. But man, like I, like I said, I had I had two topics. Stephen had two, and we probably talked about like six different things throughout the hour. Yeah, I felt like it went pretty good. I mean, it was only our uh, second show together, so it can only get better from this. I would imagine. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, maybe. that's the that's the thing, right? We all want to get better every time. Um, I found like, look, I just think reps like anything, like you guys know, it's anything you've ever done, just reps, you know, there just becomes a point where you need more reps, more opportunities. And I, you know, you're going to, you're going to get them here, which is great. And I think, you know, you guys brought good energy. You came out swinging. I thought, you know, you kind of teased a little bit what you were going to talk about during this show, but I thought you guys did a really good job. I listened for about 15, 20 minutes. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Which I normally don't. I just normally I get out. I'm done. No, I'm just kidding. Talk Timbers coming up here on 750 The Game. For those of you listening on Fox Sports Eugene or in Klamath Falls on 960 AM or in Roseburg on 1490 AM, the score, I appreciate you being out there. For those listening on a podcast, make a commitment to us for crying out loud. We commit to you. Make a commitment to us. You know, subscribe. Leave us some feedback. Let some other people find us. That's how the algorithm works, I'm told. In the end, we are back tomorrow with the 10th annual BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament. Uh, for those of you who uh, want to tune in tomorrow, I think it'll be wild. You'll get to hear a bunch of guests you don't get to hear in one place. And I love Stevens in my ear. 20, 15, 10. I was going to go uh, slow on purpose, but I didn't. <laughs> I love it. Uh, we'll catch you tomorrow. Have a great night, everybody. Stay safe out there, and we'll catch you on tomorrow's broadcast.